Keith Bishop talks about his decision to leave the Denver Broncos as the highest paid offensive lineman for the last two years and join the DEA. Were you at that point to where it was that bad or were you afraid it oh, was no, no, going to no. get that I, bad? I was, I was emotionally hurt. Not Okay. I mean, I'd had a lot of surgeries. I think I'd had 14 surgeries by then. But some of them, you know, some of those are scopes and, you know, just change the oil in the knees and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I had some major surgeries too. Like I'd ruptured a peroneus tendon in a foot and I'd have both knees reconstructed and I'd have my hand rebuilt and, uh, or thumb, the, you know, the, the crux of separating us from others is, uh, the thumb and all that kind of stuff. But no, I had another three, four years in me of, Play what was the deciding factor? Any, right. Just giving my perception of giving so much and then getting tooled and uh, my last year. And What do you mean by that? You're getting tooled. I mean, too old or tooled? Tooled. Screwed. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back, you players, playwrights, dudes, dudettes, and everything in between. I am Morgan Wright. I am the, like, ultimate host, and then I have my semi-ultimate host because he's been hurting for the last few days. <laughs> you're lucky you're still sitting up straight right now, pal. My fellow partner in crime, uh, Steve Murphy. Hey, everybody. It's uh, not COVID. I tested negative for COVID, but... Uh... Our five-year-old granddaughter comes over every weekend, spends a night with us, and hangs out. And apparently, she picked up a virus at school, and she shared that with Grammy and Pops. And I think my mom and dad just finished up with it, or they're finishing up with it today. So we the share everything in our keeps family. Keeps on giving, yes. And <laughs> no you secrets. were headed to you were headed to midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. You were headed to Savannah, Georgia, then San Luis Obispo, and you had to cut out a couple trips because you were so sick, bro. You're not kidding. I ended up in the emergency room for several hours, uh, primarily from dehydration and all that crap. So it's all cleaned up, but uh, I had to leave my partner, Javier Pena, to, to take care of him. So God bless him. He's he's actually, as we're recording this right now, he's he's doing a presentation later today in San Luis Obispo. Um, it's the first time in seven years we've missed a speaking event. I can't believe it. Well, you're cleaned me. up and cleaned out apparently too, so yeah, <laughs> you're back to weight. square one. It's <laughs> <laughs> a hell of a way to lose weight, but I did. Oh my God, how far we have fallen with this level of this conversation. Anyway, guys, hey, well, thank you guys back. Hey, before we get started, just a quick bit of housekeeping. Remember, Apple and Spotify have this new feature. It's called Five Stars. Well, Apple's always had it. <laughs> Spotify's got it now. Just go hit the five stars. Let us know what you think about it. Your ratings really help. I mean, it helps us obviously um, get exposed to more people, but you know, we're, we're insecure. We get older, we get insecure. We need people That's saying right. nice things about us. So right. go see if you, and if you say something mean, it doesn't matter because it doesn't hurt our feelings anyway. But anyway, head on over there. Also head on over to our website, Game of Crimes podcast.com. Uh, we've got a lot of good pictures. In fact, uh, we'll talk about episode 50, our, uh, uh, penultimate episode. We put pictures of Pablo Hippos on there taken by the real DEA narcos, the guys that were down there. So you'll have to go check that out. We got our merch, live events, mailing list, but follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes uh, podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But where you got to be, 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 Murph. You have got to be on Patreon because there is so much good stuff on there. It's unbelievable. 
patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. I mean, we have got about as much content on Patreon now as we have put out on podcasts. And so we've got some really good stuff coming up. Had it not been for Chris Feistel on Saturday telling Dave Mitchell, hey, I'm good. We can record Sunday. And then Sunday telling us, oh, I forgot. My daughter's got a golf tournament. <laughs> we would have had uh, the real DEA Narcos on the real DEA Narcos Cali edition in the can and getting ready to put out. But we just got to finish recording the last two episodes. This will be 16 parts. It is worth every penny of it. You're not kidding. You've got to listen to this because if you thought Javier and I telling our story, the, you know, I think what well, we did 12 hours on that one. This yep. is this is just eye opening. It's unbelievable what's going on. Hey, and th- and you know what? Um, I just found out that uh, I'm not going to tell you how I found out, but I just found out there's going to be a fourth season of Narcos Mexico on Netflix. I know how, how you that? found out. How? Somebody you worked on Narcos with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're Come right. Come on, a trained <laughs> investigator, please. Yeah, but I, I, I'm not sure that that's public. I haven't, I haven't Googled it yet to see if that's public knowledge, but I thought they were completely done. I thought six seasons was it, and here they are having seven, seven seasons. So if you didn't know that, now you do. This is where you get all the scoop. This is where you get the good stuff, and that's why you got to be on patreon.com slash gameofcrimes. Hey, also, uh, just head on over to paypal.com. Use our email, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com, which you can also email us at. Your ideas, complaints, comments, gripes, bitches, moans, whatever it is that it might be. Paypal.me slash gameofcrimes, whatever it takes to make it easier for you to uh, support the show. But a quick disclaimer, we talk about crime and we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We do take the story seriously, but... As you can already tell, we don't take ourselves serious at all. <laughs> no, we don't. And one way we don't take ourselves seriously is we have to talk about something very important, Steve. Do you know what time it is? I think it might be time for Small, Small Town, Town Police, Police Blotter. Blotter. And this week, we've got a couple stories from our Game of Crimes fan group. Uh, the group is run by our favorite mafia queen in residence, Sandy Salvato. And we've got a couple that came in. So, yay! So, hey, Mariah Lawson sends us this next story. And Steve, now I got to ask you, have you, you know, during your times with DA, even as, you know, as a real cop when you were back in uh, Krusty Krab, West Virginia, did you ever have to search anything that was abandoned, like a house, a car, you know, a business? Oh, yeah. All the time. Have you ever found an abandoned car? Uh, probably. Not a trick question. I know, yeah, probably. I mean, you I'm found trying an, to remember you found... specifically. No, you found cars that were abandoned. You know, people dump them. You know, they leave them. You know, drug runners. You know, like that, right? Yeah. I bet you. I, I bet you. There. Here's something you've never found on the road: an Uh-oh. abandoned house. On an the road. abandoned house on the road. <laughs> Police in Iberia Parish, Louisiana, recently arrested two men in connection with an illegal heavy haul that resulted in a shitload of property damage and power outage. At 3:30 a.m. on May 22nd, this is just recent. I mean, we are just talking about days ago. Uh, the Iberia Parish Sheriff's Office responded to uh, Burrard Road in Laurelville, uh, Laurelville, population 778, <laughs> for a report of an illegal transport of a house. When they arrived on scene, they found an abandoned truck, trailer, and a house blocking the entire 400 block of Burrard Road. This has been an ongoing situation, and the owner of the house, Troy Domingue, I uh, was instructed and warned by the sheriff's officials that proper permits needed to be had. He did not have those, and they tried to move uh, down Kotu Holmes Road. They mowed down mailboxes, <laughs> road signs, trees were damaged in the process, as well as power lines and poles causing 
695 power customers to be without power for several Whoa. hours. They located and arrested, and if you saw the mug photos, they do not look like the sharpest tools in the shed. Domingue and Nico <laughs> Como, uh, and that's like, how do you spell snow in Louisiana? S-N-E-U-X. This is Como, C-O-M-E-A-U-X, 32 on charges of violation of parish ordinance, obstruction of highway commerce, and criminal damage to property. Both men were booked into jail on bonds, Steve, of $125,000 each. Uh, you know what? That's not high enough for what they did. Because if 695 people lost their power, there's only 770 people in the community. Oh, there's a bunch of pissed off people there. <laughs> yeah, but screw. you know, if I was them, I might look at an alibi of a hurricane. A hurricane came by, picked everything up and put it there. Magically put it on wheels, rolling down the road, tied to a truck that happened to be these guys'. So, yeah, oh my gosh. that is one magic hurricane, my friend. All right. This I guess next they one, thought nobody's going to notice a big-ass house driving down the street, huh? What is it, Martha? Don't know. Can't see it for the house that's in front of me. There might go the Millers. Yeah. Might be Dorothy in there. There goes Elma Thibodeau. He's going down the road there in that house. So he's anyway, looking, he's looking for Boudreaux. That's all. Boudreaux and Thibodeau. Anyway, next one comes to us via of Luis Chavez again from our Game of Crimes fan group. This is a popular place to get stories. It is. Stephen, keeping in line and keeping in line with weird shit that you find out on the road. <laughs> this is Jacksonville, Florida, but it's a Florida man story, and I'm telling you. So two men were caught with something strapped to the roof of their car and it was a power pole an aluminum power pole they, they, they were trying to steal a light pole and this is a few years ago but after hurricane irma the jacksonville men were arrested after someone reported them seeing them load a light pole on top of an suv on the wonderwood connector on wednesday two days after hurricane <laughs> irma caused major damage according to police an officer overheard on the radio that men without shirts, that sounds like a band, men without shirts, uh, were loading a light pole on top of a gray Kia Sorento. <laughs> they noticed the light pole was missing from an area on top of the bridge. This one's pretty easy to spot. There's only one car with a light pole on top of it. They stopped them, took them into custody. So Victor Walter Apeler and Blake Lee Waller, 42, were arrested. The pole was valued at 2500 they were charged with uh, a lot of things. In fact, they found out the officers did a pond database search and learned that Appler had 72 scrap metal related transactions since January. And this was in September. So this guy is stealing and selling shit left and right. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Again, rocket science is out there. Nobody's going to notice that. Well, how, what's, how tall is a, a light pole? 20 feet? Uh, probably a little bit longer than that. Yeah, it was, it was about twice as long as the car. In fact, a photo of the man handcuffed on the sidewalk went viral. JSO's Twitter feed was quickly filled with memes and photos ridiculing the pair. <laughs> there you go. There's a whole separate class of stupid right there. I mean, think about the dent it put in the top of their car. <laughs> That's why they're not rocket scientists. Uh, speaking of somebody who's not a rocket scientist, Steve, what do we tell you kids? Don't do math. Uh-huh. 7 p.m. September 25th in the 200 block of Anchor Avenue, officers conducted a traffic stop and arrested the driver for possession of cocaine. The driver admitted he had just recently used cocaine to celebrate the completion of a drug rehab program. <laughs> uh, somehow he found, I think he forgot the purpose of going there. Huh? <laughs> you just can't make this shit up, I'm telling you. <laughs> Holy cow! That's like that's like going to prison for murder and getting out early and, and so killing somebody to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, I got it. Oh my God, folks. Okay, well. Hey, that's wait, I, just, I gotta say something though about that that light pole story in Jacksonville. 
Let me tell you, I've been thinking about Florida. There are some crazy things go down here, but you can live in a boring state or you can live in a state where stories are told every day about what goes on here. I like it here. Yep. <laughs> well, that's why we call it Florida, man. So, hey, as we thus end up the reading for today, Domine is Requiem, Kyrie Domine Danae is Requiem. I keep oh, forgetting geez. my Latin there. Anyway, <laughs> that being said, back to our back to our Latin mass. But um, so we had our 50th celebration, uh, got a lot of good comments from everybody. Thank you so much for all your support. Yeah, we can't believe. And a lot of those were two-parters. I'd say about 90% of those were two-parters. So we're going to be talking to you guys going forward about, hey, do you want the, do you like the two-parters? Is right. it? too long? Is it long enough? Do you want the, so we've been experimenting. If you noticed a couple of our episodes like this one will be a one parter, but a little bit longer. And we want you guys to just give us some feedback on the fan group page on our main, uh, on the fan group, on the main page, you know, on our email, game of crimes podcast at gmail.com hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Just let us know what you think. And because we want to accommodate you, it's not about us. It's about you. And you know what, when you give us the five stars on, on, um, uh, Apple, Apple and, and Spotify. Yes, Steve. The, <laughs> Damn, the platforms we put our podcasts on. <laughs> I put a comment on there and tell us whether you like the, the two episode versions or the one episode version. You know, we're, we want everybody to know what you think. We're trying to make you guys happy. We have access to great ton- content and we just want to share it with everybody. So you tell us what you like. Mm hmm. Yes, uh, we want the we want the uh, the happy massage. So anyway, <laughs> that being said, <laughs> let's get. Hey, and by the way, too. So yeah, well, hey, look, we got a good, we got a good one coming up because I can guarantee you we've never had this combination before. A pro football player that played on Super Bowl teams didn't win any, not till later, but still, you're at you're at the elite of the elite level. Um, dude was just. He could have he could have stayed in the NFL for a long time, but he reached a point and decided, what the hell? Let me join DEA and go visit countries like Afghanistan and, you know, and uh, work drug cases. So, Steve, this is your guy, Keith Bishop, man, former offensive lineman for the Denver Broncos playing with John Elwood. Uh, he said Elwood. I thought it was Elway, but he said Elwood. <laughs> that was funny. I tell you what, I, I am so excited about having him on the show. Uh, and you got to understand, Keith. He's one of the, he's huge. He's a massive man. He's got hands like bear paws. Uh, he is one of the most gentle giants you'll ever meet until he gets a little, maybe a little bit to drink, or I wouldn't want to piss him off to find out. But it's just so exciting to have him get on here and tell his story. 10 years in the NFL, Pro Bowler, selected for the Pro Bowl twice, and he chose to go help his fellow man. He's He's been a, you're going to hear his story. He's been a kind of a cop buff for a long time. But uh, you know, you know who benefited from all this? is the citizens of the United States as well as the countries he worked in. One hell of an investigator, one of the most dedicated uh, people I've met. I used to get emails from him or text messages at 3.30 in the morning where he's spending all night in the office when we were working Special Operations Division on ongoing operations. Don't love this guy to death. He does not do interviews. I, we, I mean, you can Google the guy. You can't f- hardly find anything about him. Uh, but when we contacted him, he said, hey, you know, I don't do interviews, but for you guys, you got it. So just I, I'm just excited that you can. I hope you can tell my voice here that I'm excited to have Keith on here. What a freaking hero in my eyes! And you can tell he doesn't do podcast interviews because the guy did not have a concept of why we have headsets <laughs> on for podcast <laughs> interviews. You will find that out during the podcast. So oh, hey, yeah. but there's only one way they can hear about this, Steve, and I have to ask you: Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous, and uh, football-friendly game of all, the game of crimes? Here we go, everybody. Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Mr. Bishop, Mr. Keith Bishop is going to bring on the exciting tales.
So before we get started with this, Murph and I were thinking about picking on our next guest. But before we do, Keith, um, in your day, how how big were you? It's not a trick question. <laughs> well, I mean, what are you talking about? How tall are you? When you're playing six, games. Six, three. And how and much did you weigh? 282, 287. All right. And played which position for the Denver Broncos? Offensive guard. That's why we're not going to pick on him. He's used to beating up people in pads and helmets for a living. Going backwards, I will, too. I will tell you, this man has the biggest freaking hands I've ever shook in my entire life. It's like a bear paw. <laughs> well, by but the way, let us get started, though, by welcoming everybody. Yeah. Um, and welcome. This is going to be a very interesting story because we've never had this combination of talent before. Somebody who played college football, played professional football, and then decided, what the hell? You know, let's go, let's go be a DEA agent. So Keith Bishop, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, you hey, say that is... now, pal. Wait, just wait. <laughs> Give us two hours. We'll see how you feel then. <laughs> hey, real quickly, what was, what was your number? 54. 54. Yeah. 50, Which is 54, Murph's IQ, by 54. the way, magically. It's that it's amazing how that works out. Yeah. Yes. 50, well, 54 in your program, number 54 in your program. And 54 one in your, one in in your, your heart. heart. Oh, geez. And <laughs> did you play with Elway? Yes. All right. We're going to have to get into that in a minute. Well, but let's, wait a minute. Let's just ask a quick question. Who was your best man at your first wedding? One well, of my high school buddies. And who else was in the party there? I thought Elway was in there. No, no, I didn't know him then. Oh. Shit, that's well, going. the hell, never mind. Hey, I'm old. Shit. That's going way back. <laughs> <laughs> and John hey. and I've been John and I've been buds for shit. Next year will be forty years. Since so. you were protecting his butt when he was playing quarterback, and you were on the line. I was trying. Yeah. Well, before we get though into a uh, digression over towards pro football, let's talk about how you got started in this whole thing because you attended a university that wasn't really known for football. During the time that when you were there, it was still Baylor. isn't, is it? Still isn't known. Oh, <laughs> uh, they did. It? They kind of peaked, and then now they're they're kind of <laughs> they're part of the Big Twelve. Look, I'm from Kansas originally, so I, I suffered too with the Kansas Wildcats before they became the Wildcats all over again. But how how did you get so you you started? You went to Baylor, right? So let's talk about that. Well, you're you're if you want to really be interesting, not that I'm going to educate y'all on being interesting because your success speaks for itself. But I started off playing high school at the bad guys on Friday night lights at Midland Lee high school. Damn. Oh, wow. So the real Friday night Lights. So it was Midland. And what was the other one? Permian Permian. It's the movie. The show is about Permian high school, which was our arch rival. I was Midland Lee. And in the, film the bad guys are midland lee how accurate of a movie was that how, how good did billy bob thornton do it's the uh you know oh, the coach. i don't know i just i i was blessed honest to goodness i was blessed I, jim acree who's passed was my high school coach at midland lee and uh he's a legend in texas high school football and uh i was fortunate enough to have him and i'm thinking back then because i think the the show takes place a few years after i'd gone but uh but they take their football seriously down there don't they 
Oh yeah. I mean, it was like businesses would change hands, you know, on bets and, or at least there were rumblings of businesses <laughs> wow. changing hands on bets and stuff and from there the are, high school football games. There are high school football stadiums down there that would rival some of the college stadiums in terms yeah, of they yeah. may not see it as many, but man, they are ornate. They are decked yeah. out, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's changed so much since, cause, and I, honest to goodness, I cannot remember how many old Midland Memorial Stadium held that where I played. Made 10,000. 10,000 at a for high a school. Well, I'm, I, I, I accurate, but I think now it's the stadium there in Midland is, I don't know, 30,000, something like that. It's, wow. it'd be, you know, and you're talking to a town back when I was in Midland, 60, 65,000 was the population in Odessa, which is always bigger was I think 80,000 or something like 90,000 or something like that. Now I think Midland's up over a hundred and I don't know what a death is. So you got that Permian basin, you know, that area where it's uh, holy cow. That's all there was. I mean, so you that, play the same the, position in high school. Now, hang on a second. We got a little interruption. Go ahead. Oh, we are in the middle of a high security incident. Okay, doke. I'm kind of out of communicado for the next hour or so, uh, but I'm in my office. Sorry about that. Well, let's just tell people um, the reason you had to answer that is because what is your current job right now? I'm vice president of security for the Denver Broncos football club. There you go. There you go. I, I mean, just think about what do I mean? I can't wait for our listeners to hear this whole story because. Here's a guy who's a very close friend of mine, but has done things that we all dream about doing. I mean, play, you know, going to a major high school, <laughs> holy cow, that seats the stadium seating 10 to 30,000, maybe up to 80 to 100,000, goes to the NFL, plays college football, goes early to the NFL draft, becomes a DEA agent, goes back to NFL football. This is going to be one of the best interviews we've ever done right here. Uh, it's I'm very fortunate. Yeah. Well, let's talk about. Um, so Did I mentioned how humble he is because I hate <laughs> yeah. this man is. I'm not bullshitting. He's, he's very humble. Now you played the same position in high school that you did uh, college no, and pros. No, I was well. I was a defensive lineman, defensive tackle in high school, and then I played offensive center in high school. I was like backup center if emergency situations, you know, which never happened. But uh, and then I played some guard too. That's because, well, yeah. So anyway, but I was defense, and then I went out of college. I went to Nebraska initially, mm -hmm. and uh, was defensive lineman. And then they moved me to offensive lineman at Nebraska, and I was there for two years. And then I left, and I was. It was. I didn't get along with uh, the head coach at Nebraska. And, was, uh, was that Tom Osborne at the time? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it was. And then my mom was sick and uh, with cancer. And so it was the spring. It was spring game, and me and another player, whoever, this my sophomore year or going into my sophomore year, and 
whoever in the no, it's going going. It's after my freshman year, sophomore year. It was whoever scored the best in the spring game would be marked for center, starting center, the next season. And uh, I had a very good game and uh, spring game. And the grades came out, and I was not going to be the starting center. And, <laughs> and it was like, well, this is bullshit. And uh, old players, I mean, that were seniors graduated, Rick Bonas and uh, Vince Fer- Ferragamo and different guys, they were like, dude, you, this is bullshit. You know, you, you need to leave. And so it was like, you know what, screw it, I'm gone. And so I was just going to go home. My dad was an architect, had a construction company in Midland, and uh, my mom was sick. So I was like, you know, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm going home. And so I get home and I'm going to start working with my dad. And uh, he's like, and my mom are like, if you can get your schooling paid for, don't be stupid, go to school. And Baylor had recruited me. I was heavily recruited coming out of high school. So that's when I went to Baylor. Before we get too far in, how many offers did you have coming out of high school? And why did you pick Nebraska? Because by the way, you know what the N on Nebraska's helmet stands for? Uh, knowledge. 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 Yeah. See, you know. Yeah. I'm not stupid. <laughs> I know how to spell. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, anyway, my senior year, I was very highly recruited. And uh, in practice, I got kicked in the side of the foot and it broke my little toe. And so I had a break. Uh, on the outside of your little toe and the tendon that attached to it and it pulled it back. So the doctor said, take two weeks off and then you can start playing again. So I took two weeks off. Well, all these schools, I mean, I had, I can't, I I can't remember how many, how many schools were uh, recruiting me. It's all all over the country. And uh, everybody quit talking to me except, for Nebraska. I mean, everybody. It was like... Because of the injury? Yeah, because of a broken little toe. And uh, it was like, well, you know, they probably, oh, they're saying it's a little toe, but what is it that's really wrong with the kid and all this kind of stuff? You know, so... But anyway, Nebraska always kept recruiting me. And plus, the guy that was recruiting me from Nebraska, Jerry Moore, he went on from Nebraska to Appalachia State and was wrecking-setting coach there. Great guy, but he played for my high school coach in Bonham, Texas. And so there was a little more knowledge sharing. And so Jerry always kept recruiting me strong. And uh, so that was kind of the determining factor why I, I'm going to Nebraska. They never quit recruiting me. And then after I got there and then went through whatever. And then when I went back, it was like, well, you know, my old high school offensive line coach was now coaching at Baylor. So I got a hold of them and said, hey, I want to walk on, you know, at Baylor if y'all let me. But the problem back with the NCAA in that day, right, was you had to sit out a year, didn't you? It's not like the transfer and, portal yeah. now. You had to sit out for yeah. a year before you could be eligible, yeah. right? Yeah. And I did have to sit out. I mean, you redshirt. That was my redshirt year was sitting out. Uh, but you could still go to practice and do stuff, right? Yeah, you were a uh, – a practice like a practice like in the nfl you're a practice squad guy you 
ran plays against the defense. And oh, so you were the Rudy guys. Rudiger for the uh, Baylor Bears. Yeah, and in fact, I won the Golden Egg for that year for being a good practice guy. The Golden Egg? Or something like that. It was something golden. It was, the, the golden turd. You're a good egg. You're yeah. a good egg. <laughs> it was like I got a I got a little trophy. I think I still got it, but it had diapers on it, and uh, it was and it was like a yeah. It was a it was it was. I mean Baylor. I love Baylor. I'm not Baptist. I grew up Church of Christ. You know the Holy Rollers, and uh, went to Baylor and Baylor's Baptist. You know centric school, but back then in the late seventies. When I was there, it was like 50% were Baptist professors and 50% were, were whatever. And it was like if you cheated and got caught, you were out no matter who, who you, you were. were. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, you know, I, I got caught cheating one time, but I didn't get kicked out because I even copied the, uh, person i was cheating off of in the name slot i copied their name on the name <laughs> slot too so, so they, no, I'm, I'm teasing. The that really, that really truly stands for knowledge yeah. yes <laughs> you learned really a lot did. out that, of nebraska that really did happen but it wasn't me so uh, <laughs> oh, man. so but so just now look, then i went to baylor but how many offers do you think you would have had coming out of high school? I don't know. Because my coach kept them all. He didn't give any of them to me till after we had finished our senior year. Oh, okay. So I, I had a stack, you know, You should have went over. to – all I can tell you, you should have went to Notre Dame. Just, I had letters from Notre Dame. Well, you should have went. Well, I had well, letters from USC, too. No, he was smart no. enough. He was smart enough, smart enough to turn down Notre Dame. And that's not <laughs> South Carolina, Steve. That's Southern California. California. That's not USC. That's University of South Carolina. <laughs> Come on now. And it has been, I think, one thousand one hundred and twenty-two days since USC last beat Notre Dame. So we're going to keep the streak going. So anyway. Well, and then uh, I, one of our players <laughs> we just got was talking today or yesterday, day before. Anyway, on an interview, and he was talking about all his family were all. University of Southern California guys and girls. And he went to UCLA and he goes, yeah, but he goes, we beat them this past year. I think he said we put 60 on them. So I didn't, obviously I didn't follow the game or anything, but he said his family, none of his family would speak with him. So <laughs> you always, you always have great college <laughs> stories. I mean, there's always, uh, and I, I bet you there were some good rivalries down in Texas too. That could rival that. So, um, but you did that reach year. So uh, now it would be kind of what your fourth year of college. You're actually playing your third year of football, right? Yeah, but it's my really my first year. I played. A, I was in one or two games my freshman year on varsity at Nebraska. Then they moved me back to the freshman team, which was good because it was a solely a freshman football team that you went around and played uh, equivalent uh, competition. And then uh, at Nebraska, and then my sophomore year, I didn't get to play much at Nebraska. And then red-shirted at Baylor, and then I played that next year, which would – so really that was my first year of playing. First and then full my, year of playing. Yeah. And then my senior year, 
I got hurt in the first preseason game, or it wasn't preseason, non-conference game, blew my knee out. And uh, so I didn't play my whole senior year until the bowl game. I got to play in our bowl game. We played uh, in the Peach Bowl against Clemson. And? And and then I got drafted after that. No, and then when, no. Did you win? Yes. I can't remember what the score was, so. Now wait a minute. So you you first of all you injure your toe, you lose a lot of offers, um, and then you only play a couple games at Nebraska, not too much the second year. You redshirt, you play a year a Baylor, then you blow out your knee in a non conference game, and you still get drafted yeah. early. Well, I was sixth round. It's not early. Well, I meant, but you went early. Well, when I say early, did you you? But you finished your senior year. You graduated from Baylor. Well, I had to go back to graduate. That's a whole nother good story. But because uh, I. That's what I anyway, meant by you left so, early for the draft, right? You didn't complete no, no, college. No, 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 yeah. no, no. I, five years. I mean, well, I didn't play that. I guess now you'd probably be able to play another year because, but back then I had already redshirted. Yeah. So you one year of eligibility. Four, yeah. So you got five years to do four. And going into my fifth year to do my fourth year of eligibility, I blew my knee out. So I was, you know, and then uh, then I got to play in the in the post game postseason game against the the Peach Bowl, Clemson. Peach Bowl, Clemson. I don't like Clemson either. So we have something in common. Uh, no, no offense to you, Clemson fans out there, but. Um, I don't think it's going to be a good year for Clemson this year, but we'll see. Anyway, I digress. Rebuilding, but, rebuilding year. Rebuilding, yeah. Hey, but um, but in spite of all of that, uh, you, still the sixth round. You, I mean, you, you think about all the people who play football, um, high school football, then those who go to college football, and then those who even make it into the NFL. So even the sixth round is like you're still the top 1% of the 1% that are getting picked. I oh, mean, yeah. with I mean, even with a blown-out knee, how did that happen? I was going to say, you must have played one heck of a game in that yeah. bowl game for them to put you in the draft after you've missed a whole year. Yeah, I don't know. I, like I said, I'm very fortunate. And uh, See, the, other thing that, the other thing that was I was very fortunate about was that Whitey Duvall was the offensive line coach for the Broncos. And uh, he came down and worked me out at Baylor. I mean, and basically kind of talked with me. And he had already watched film and everything. And he was – uh, one of the great offensive line coaches in NFL. And uh, he had come from New England with Red Miller. And uh, so he, I think he pushed for me as well to to get me. He's since passed. But uh, my rookie year, I had Whitey as my offensive line coach for uh, uh, at the Broncos. And I was very fortunate to have him as a rookie. You, know, so you, had, you had Red and Whitey. All you yeah, need is Mr. Blue. Blue. <laughs> yeah. Bluey. That was Bluey. it. Well, let's <laughs> let's talk about uh what it's like to be a rookie in the NFL. It's in those days, yeah. everybody you had to have a I mean, actually one of the guys I used to work with a long time ago played with the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, but the minimum I think salary when he was there was like seventy five thousand. Did they they had a minimum salary, right, for anybody who went to the NFL? Oh yeah, yeah. And then uh I mean the My what I, my signing bonus was, I think seventeen thousand five hundred, and then my 
my first year, I signed a two-year contract. I think my first year was 30000 My second year was 40000 And uh, my signing bonus was 17500 no wonder you had to story. go work for the government. You had to be able to make a living. Jeez. Yeah. You know, but that's the sixth round. I don't know what the, the, the you know, the first and second, third round draft choices yeah. were getting back then. But uh, probably, obviously, know, it, was, it, was a little, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot more. So, so tell us, what's it like to be a rookie in the National Football League? I mean, we hear stories, uh, you know, I live in Loudoun County, so... Now they're called the Washington Commanders, but they were the Redskins and had, uh, we knew kids who worked down there and, you know, it, some things are fun and some things are like, like making the rookies buy everything. You go out with them as like, Hey rookie, you know, pay for this, pay for this. So what was it like to be a rookie with the Denver Broncos? And what year was that? What was your rookie year? 1980 was my rookie year. And, uh, it was, they didn't. Well, you had to get up and sing and at training camp and sing your fight song, college fight song. And they, they, it was, it was hard. I mean, it was training camp was tough back then. And, uh, did they have it in Greeley, Colorado? Well, no, my first two years, it was in Fort Collins and Fort Collins was great because, yeah. uh, it was right up against the mountains and, uh, you'd have that weather come in in the mornings. It was cool and overcast. And then in the evenings, when you go out for your second practice, because back then you had two hard practices a day, and it come in, and then you'd have more weather would generally come in. Sometimes it's pretty bad thunderstorms and like that, but uh, you had the weather impact. Now, when we moved to Greeley, you're out in the stockyards, basically. and uh, That's the smell and, of money, baby. Cattle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it got hot. I mean, really hot. <laughs> But it's it's the thing that's so great about Colorado is you got to deal with the altitude, but the uh, there's the, there's no humidity, so you're not battling that in cold or in heat. You're not battling the humidity. You're battling you know the elevation. And I was in really good shape my rookie year, but man, I remember Coach Miller just laughing because he was he goes boy that monkey got on your back because i mean you're doing your drills and everything and then you had to always had to do sprints and stuff and it would just it would hit and you thought you were going to die you thought your everything was going to come out you know your <laughs> lungs and but you, you you know you get used to it after like six eight weeks you know this all the studies it's you go there do your physical exercise and get out because you're not going to acclimate. You're going to start high and then you just go down and then you stay down and then you start building back up. So it's like, it takes a while, but you know, it was, Dang. it was hard. It was, they, they, they give you a hard time. They did. But if you were humble or a little bit, they knew you were sincere and you they knew you had talent then it uh it led it segued to people treating you good quicker yeah you had to show that dedication determination and perseverance yeah and and how you dealt with a little bit of adversity i mean you, you know you had people like gratishar and the guys everybody hears about you know we were up in fort collins and we're in the, you're in a dormitory at the university and it's hot, so you'd 
get the box fans, you know, the, the great big box fans that you'd go buy for back then, they're probably seven bucks or something like that. And you put it in your window at night, you'd open your windows up and you'd put that box fan in there and turn it on. So it'd cool. Cause at night it gets cool, but Gratishar and them, they get out on the ledge and tape smoke bombs to the screen <laughs> and light those things. And so then you'd, you'd be in there sleeping and you know, you're a rookie. You're all worried about, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. Are they cut me tomorrow. Is the Turk going to be out? And all of a sudden your room's just full of smoke, you know, from smoke bombs. So. And then you'd be coming in in the evenings and they'd be up on the roof with pails of water and they'd dump water from six floors up, you know, and it hit you. Oh, that hurts. About, yeah, it'd about knock you out. Not really, but I mean, it would, it would shock you if they oh, got I'll you. Bet. And, uh, I'll bet. So, you know, it was, there was a lot of fun, but you know, and you thank goodness because that breaks up the, you know what's gonna happen what's gonna happen then. well you started to build camaraderie with your teammates as yeah, well yeah hey so what was the biggest difference you noticed between playing college ball and pro ball what was the first thing that stood out to you in terms of like um because uh, you'd always watch the reason i say that is that there are some people who do so good in college but then when they hit the pros they just can't hack it then you get people who were okay in college but then they hit the pros and it's like, like a Tom Brady, you know, it goes from nobody knew who this guy was to Tom Brady. So for you, what was the biggest difference between playing college ball and playing pro ball? Bigger, faster, and stronger, but it was like really faster. I mean, like you'd see people run and it's like, damn, you know, and, uh, and you'd see individuals here and there in college that were, you'd go, Oof. You know, but you'd see a bunch of people like, whoa, and strong. And, but the, the mental aspect of it is the biggest, I, I would say is the biggest thing is getting yourself in the right mind frame, the mental toughness and the bullshit meter out, the don't get led astray, don't get distracted. I mean, just that mental part of it. And then to be able to go out each day and practice and prove yourself. And then in the game, when you're in the game, games are easier than the practice and everything else because then it's it's a lot more, you're not in a pass rush drill or you're not in a, you know, a run blocking drill where the defensive guy knows you're run blocking or the defensive guys know that you're taking pass sets and stuff. So, you know, and the games to me were easier than the practice because, you know, it's, or scrimmages, you know, when you're a controlled scrimmage and it's, it's, but that mental, the, the mental part of it is a huge factor, but the size, speed, toughness, and basically the snot bubbles that you most frequently get the hell knocked out of you. You know, and being able to, oh, that's part of the game. Laugh it and then try to do it to the next person. Jeez. Oh, man. <laughs> I can't imagine. So um, how long was it before you got your first rep in a NFL game? Oh, right away. I played a lot my my rookie year. I played a whole lot. And uh, I didn't start, but I, I think I started a couple of games because of injury to other uh, offensive linemen. But uh, 
I played a lot my my rookie year, and uh, it was fun. I mean, it's it's you know played the Cowboys, played the Raiders, you know, it's played the Chargers. All my dad's family is from San Diego. I grew up loving Lance Allworth. He was my idol as far as a player, and you know, and obviously I was never a receiver, but uh, you know, just the Chargers. My all my dad's family. We'd go out there twice every year during you know, summer break and, uh, and Christmas holiday. And it was, you know, playing the Chargers, you know, sheesh, it was the Cowboys, the Oilers. And I mean, it was, it was neat, you know, these, that these are things first couple that, years. That most young guys just dream of kids. Yeah. You know, you dream of this kind of stuff and you actually got to do it. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I remember I called my parents because my parents, they passed, both of them passed the same year, but, uh, I remember I called him because Craig Morton was still with the Broncos when my rookie year. And so I'm out of practice and I'm snapping to Craig Morton. I called my parents, you know, and had to call him on a hard line because we didn't have cell phones back then. And, uh, you know, Hey, I snap into football to Craig Morton today, you know, because yeah. we'd all grown up watching Craig Morton, Roger Staubach and all that. So uh, growing up in Midland. So. Midland. So who was the quarterback your first year? Because I know Elway didn't come in until like 83 or something, right? 84? 83. Uh, Matt Robinson, if I remember right. They brought Matt Robinson in. He was either – he. I really liked him. He was either from the Giants or the Jets. He's from New York team. And we had Matt Robinson. Then Craig, Craig was there, I believe. I know he was there during training camp. I don't know if he retired then or stayed on. We had Matt Robinson, and then Steve DeBerg came, I think, the next year. And we had uh, Norse Weiss, and then John came in 83. We had Mark Herman, I think, came in 82. And then Elway came in 83. Yeah, being a Notre Dame guy and watching Notre Dame play Stanford and stuff like that, you know, that was kind of the big thing. It was called the Elway watch. I think everybody's wondering, where's John going to go? And it was kind of a contentious thing because the last thing he wanted to do was play for the Baltimore Colts, but that's who he was drafted by to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, <laughs> we were fortunate enough to get him. And then uh, then we went and we played them in a preseason game that year. And I mean, it was 117 degrees on the turf, on the on the grass field at the Baltimore Stadium, and that's where the Orioles played, and they were in the pennant race. So half the field was still baseball dirt diamond. <laughs> and, oh man! And it was it it was down on the field. It was like 117 degrees, and uh, I lost, honest to God, like 27 pounds in that because they. In training camp and everything, they weigh you before you go out, and then they weigh you coming back in. So it's way out and then weigh in, and it sounds reverse, but they wanted to see how much so they could regulate and know that okay, it's that dude lost a lot. He's got to you know replenish, and uh, but I mean it was it was kind of comical because we had those. I don't have a helmet. Uh, blue. A blue helmet, that light blue, sky blue helmet, and then we had our white uniforms. And I sweat a lot. And after I had rolled in that dirt enough, I mean, it was. It looked like you played for the Cleveland Browns. 
I would disappear. I would disappear. Only thing you'd see is my helmet. You know, when I go back into the dirt and Reeves, not one Reeves. Yeah, it was. It was Reeves. Reeves was running the film back and forth. Everybody was laughing because I just disappear. You just see, boom, <laughs> and then you'd see my blue helmet going. But, uh, but I mean, they had the nuke Elway and all that kind of stuff. It was there. There's so much fun that behind the scenes that people don't get to know about that uh, you just yeah. It, it, but it's what makes the game so fun. I mean. You know, it's well. It's kind of like the the uh, practical jokes that cops pull on each other. Yeah, Pub- yeah. public never knows about it, but they're hilarious. And there are some, if they found out about them, <laughs> some of those might be indictable. I'm not sure, but uh, statute limitations just, run just out on hours. Yeah, so we're good. Just, <laughs> thank goodness there weren't any cell phones back in those days. Oh, that could geez. record video. That's correct, yeah. man. If no. they had those back in college, man, there a lot of us might not have the jobs we do. So uh, mm-hmm. no, no. <laughs> hey, well. So now, I mean, like now you're playing, but at some point though, um, not, I don't want to sh- like short circuit the whole thing, but at some point you kind of, you, you, you get to a Super Bowl for the first time with Elway, right? Is that, that was your yes. first Super Bowl you were in, right? Yep. Yep. I played in three and, uh, it was what after year? the 86, it was the 87 Super Bowl, the 88 Super Bowl, and then the 90 Super Bowl. So it was the 86 season, the 87, 87 season. Yeah. We played those two Super Bowls, and we got beat by the Giants, and then we got beat by the Redskins. And then we missed a year, and then my last year we went and we got beat by the 49ers. So we didn't score enough points in all three of the games to win one of them. <laughs> Well, that's a different way of looking at it. <laughs> well, we it was lopsided, you know, and we had a better team than that. But, uh, I mean, the first two, we were as good as our opponent. We got outplayed. We got beat. Yeah. The 49ers had a great team, and they kicked the hell that out of us. That was Joe Montana, and, right? Yeah. And uh, they were a better team than us. The first two, we – it was – we got – we get, I mean, obviously we got beat, but I mean, the talent measurement, uh, we c- compete with those two teams. So with all things being equal, what's the deciding factor then in a game like that? Is it like some coaches will say, look, we got out coached. Was it the mental attitude of the team? What was the, what was the thing that was the big deciding factor in that game that gave them the edge over you guys, even though you guys were basically on par, uh, you know, it's, talent it's, wise? It's, 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 it's such a momentum game. And the thing about this, at least for me, is you don't get tired in the Super Bowl. I mean, other games you get, but you're you're so fired up and everything. It's it's, but that momentum gets swung, and one screw up here, one screw up there, another screw up there, and screw up here, and screw up there, and then all of a sudden you're way behind. And then the other team, that mental focus, and it's like done deal. It's but uh, the, in the in the playoffs, it's you you play the regular season and it's hard. But once you make the playoffs, it's that again harder. I mean, the physical, the the output from the players, and and then you win that first one, you go to that next playoff game, that's harder. And then you go to that next one, 
And then that's our, now you're going to the Super Bowl. And then it's like, Katie bar the door and each game, the, the intensity of the play and the focus and everything. And hopefully the fans see that because it is, it's such an increase in the teams that know that, that have the veteran players that express that and get the younger players to realize, Hey, this shit's on. It's that's the, uh, the success to get teams. prepared. Yeah. Yeah. You need, when you're doing this, you're are you seeing your family at all? Yeah, yeah. It's it's not bad, bad, but you are kind of like the night before the game. They separate you and stuff like that. You may go out early for a few days, then they'll bring all the families out, you know, and then the families. Then you get to spend time with your family. Then back, it's back to night before the game. You're it's like home game. Well, it depends on the coach whether you're separated as a team and you're and you know that's a that's the coach head coach's call well the, and the general manager the first two years that that you guys went to the super bowl you got selected for a special honor didn't you did you get selected for pro bowl yeah yeah i was uh yeah those those two years and then uh my next year i had a a brilliant coach I'm not going to name him, but, uh, that sounds like sarcasm, we, <laughs> sarcasm. We were, we were in practice and, uh, he told, uh, defensive guys, the practice team, the fire off on us. And this guy that was probably 300 and something pounds, he goes full blast because the coach told him to, and he hits my thumb and completely obliterated. So anyway, I missed half my season of the next year so i didn't i didn't i was uh first alternate so that kind of and then the next year me and reeves didn't uh see this anyway that was my last year and then but yeah i i I was uh i was uh highest vote getter of uh afc according to what the coaches said so yeah it was it was a huge honor in that uh, Absolutely, man. You know, so. So I got to ask you, 10 years playing Pro Bowl, by the by your 10th year, uh, you don't have to disclose it, but I mean, but you're making pretty good coin after 10 years now, right? With the Pro Bowl and the yeah, my, awards my last, my last two years, I was the highest paid offensive lineman in the league. Well, wow. not but, bad. you know, that's back that's then. That's not a quarterback, now, right? Well, here, here's the comparison, because John and I always laugh about it. Not anymore because we're too old. But uh, <laughs> it was back during we had I think we, I think we had three strikes while I played in my ten years, and one of the strikes the older people remember it was fifty five percent of the gross. That's what the so we had this big meeting down in New Mexico and players association, and I was one of the player reps, and so I was we were all down there, and they took a vote who supported the 55% and they said, who's opposed? And I raised my hand. And I was the, the only, the only one that raised their hand against it. And I was for free agency. Like, uh-huh. you know, let the, when they were, you know, Mrs. Ed Garvey and Gene Upshaw and all of that group. And Gene became, a, a, we were, we became good friends, but uh, anyway, I was free agency and they were 55% of the gross. So anyway, boom, into my career. 
I'm the highest paid offensive lineman in the league. I leave. Three years later, my salary was the average salary of a backup lineman in the NFL. So that just puts it in perspective because like a year or two later, free agency came about and that the, the salaries, you know, skyrocketed from there. I was well compensated, you know, and well, well you, two, you get if you make it to the Super Bowl, you, whether you win or lose, you get a bonus on that. You probably get a bonus for the Pro Bowl selection, right? The yeah, playoffs. Yeah, the the the, and I don't know what it is now, but then the the winning team, because you got you got a check for each playoff game, and it was I mean it wasn't a lot. It was like twenty five hundred dollars for this game. 5000 for this game, 7500 for the Super Bowl to the loser, 15000 to the winner. You know, something along those, or it may have been 7500 to the losing team, each player, and 10000 to the winner of the Super Bowl, you know, to each player. It was something along those lines. But then in your contracts, individually, you could have, you know, you make the Pro Bowl, you got, 20,000, 25,000, whatever, you know, something along those lines like that. Some incentives are built into yeah, it. Yeah. So Jeez. you become the highest paid lineman. Um, you get the Pro Bowl honors. You're in three Super Bowls. So what the hell possessed you to leave and join DEA? Well, in. Uh, I mean, how did you take what? a few hits without the helmet on? I mean, what happened? Just be honest with us here, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in uh, 86, both my parents passed away. And so that was like, it was during the off season and, uh, you know, it was really bad. And uh, my dad had always, he said, you know, son, do whatever the hell you want to do, but just don't do dope. And uh, what do we say, Steve? What do we tell our kids? We say kids don't don't do do math. math. (laughs) Well, back then it was all inclusive. Don't do dope. And, uh, so anyway, while I was playing back in the old days in the eighties, you had to, you could do appearance, you could do whatever to make up money in the off season, you know, appearances. Some of the guys played on basketball teams, you know, the Broncos basketball team, they go around playing and people pay to, and, and, or, but you had to do three appearances in the community that were like pro bono, you know, for community relations, you know, for, and so you had to do three. And then if you couldn't do three or you didn't want to do three, you could go to one of your teammates and you could say, Hey, Steve, or Hey, Morgan, will y'all do an appearance for me? And they go, yeah, yeah. So that's two. So then I'd go to uh, the PR guy and say, Hey, Morgan's doing one appearance for me and Steve's doing the other and they go, okay, you're covered. And, but anyway, so I would go around and I would talk to kids at schools and it was like junior high graduation, whatever awards banquet, you know, little things like that. But on, uh, Mondays after the games on Sunday, you play game Sunday, Monday, you go in, you watch the film, you exercise, get the soreness out. And then Tuesdays was your day off. Well, we had 
the Denver SWAT was our security for the Broncos back then. There's four guys, five guys, five guys that were our, the Denver SWAT were our security. And, uh, so on Monday nights, because Tuesdays were a day off, I'd go ride with Denver SWAT, you know, and spend the evening riding. They're called Metro here. And uh, I'd ride with them. And shit, we all became friends and go out shooting and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, so I was doing speaking to the kids and stuff. And I started taking one of the cops with me. And so they'd go with me to speak to the kids. And I'd talk to them about football and let them ask all that kind of stuff. And then we'd talk about drugs and stuff and have the, the police there with us and, you know, staying out of trouble and stuff. And the people were always wanting to pay me for doing that. And I'd, it would that would just, the pay would go to the police officer that went with me. And so that was, you know, it's Bruce Tao, who's, he was, he retired from DPD and he was killed in uh, Iraq, you know, doing the contracting stuff there. And then uh, Mark Lewis, he just passed away from a few years back. He was doing it. And then Kenny Overman, who's still here, he's retired, but he's head of security for a huge uh, conglomerate here that, so I see him at games and then, uh, Bob Snyder, I don't know where he, he took off somewhere. And then Dave Abrams who retired, but he was my position before I came back. So those are the five guys I'd take them with me and they would talk to the kids and then the people would pay them. And the people loved it, that it, money wasn't going to me. It was going to the police officer, you know, cause that was fun. The police back then. And, uh, Anyway, that was doing, and then DEA got wind that I was doing that. And then Ron, Steve knows this guy, Ron Hollingshead, was the uh, recruiter demand reduction guy in Denver. And uh, so he would come over and stuff, and we'd get them, we'd get them memorabilia they'd take to auctions and, you know, fundraisers and stuff. And we got to be all friends. So DEA flew me around. like Aspen and stuff like that. Hollingshead was one night we were sitting at a, at a bar having a couple of uh, drinks and uh, he he goes, what are you going to do when you quit playing? And I go, you know, I'm not sure. I'm probably coach, but you know, I'm not sure. I've always been kind of interested in law enforcement because my parents had passed and my dad had always said, don't do dope. And, uh, well, he said, don't do drugs, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And so he slams his DEA badge out on the table at the Emerald Isle and over in Aurora, which is still going. And I still go there for wings and a couple of beers. And, uh, he goes, this is what you need to do. And that badge just, it got me. I thought, That's a cool looking badge, you know? <laughs> yes, and, it is. uh, and uh, so I got really, and he goes, yeah. And so anyway, so I get done, but you still carrying it. <laughs> Look at you. And for our listeners, he just pulled his badge out of his back pocket to show it to us. And uh, always on me to still have the retired piece on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I told you I got the <laughs> in on my helmet for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Steve. <laughs> 
I, I, you know, honestly, mine popped Re-retire. off. I didn't do it. Retired. I didn't do it. Yeah, it just Bullshit. popped off. Bullshit. No, I'm, I'm serious. I found it in the driveway one day. Yeah, Steve just badges his way into everything. Oh, sorry, DEA, move aside here. Uh, well, the problem is when I use this one, it's it's setting this plexiglass. It don't quite it's work. It's kind of hard to carry around. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I did 30 right. years at DA, and all they gave me was this plexiglass little uh, badge. So, <laughs> with a plastic badge inside. Yeah, yeah I'm oh, trying to funny. think. I still got got your handcuffs there. Yeah. That why personal they, use they, only there, Keith. Why do they yeah. have fur on them? Why? Why is that? Why are they wrapped yeah, why in they pink fur? fur? Yeah. Come on, this Hurry. is a, this is a, a family interview. I'm trying yeah, to okay. think if there's no. It's any... not, dude. You 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 have not listened to our podcast then. <laughs> okay, here you this go. This is not the I've Disney got... Channel. Hold on, All this right. is y- y'all are going to have to describe this for your fans because oh, this is this is a good one. Okay, so this oh, is geez. play by play. Keith has just taken off his headset. He is now moving towards the back of the office. He's getting something, Steve. I don't know. Does he still move as fast as he used to on the football field? I, as big as he is, yes, he did. Oh, what are you doing with uh, that? I don't think no, we can't we can't do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yeah, okay, we can do that. All right, so what he has, <laughs> what Keith has, Keith has a collection of bobbleheads. They are the 2016 candidates for president, Hillary Clinton uh... and Donald Trump. And uh these are good bobbleheads. Those are pretty good things. And what do you have there? It's a magnifying glass. Oh, okay. What does that say? Can't, I can't uh, read it. It's a prison number. <laughs> on one oh, of them's jumpsuit we'll let you decide which one <laughs> yeah we can't say we don't do politics here so we're just going to let people guess uh, yeah. got it we're going to let people guess oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he's back up out of his chair again and there he goes folks he's making a run for the end zone he has recovered the fumble he's going he could uh, go all the way he's putting no. his bobbleheads back up that's <laughs> supposed to be some really good bobbleheads, man. Oh man! Well, he's disappeared. Oh, there he is. Okay, he's back now. Well, he had on his blue helmet, and, and those are from before the election. Those are collectors' items. Yeah. Yep. Yes, they are. <laughs> hey, we didn't. We could barely see you. I mean, could you put your blue helmet on so we can track you as you go through the office yeah. here? I don't. I. <laughs> I honest to God, I don't have a helmet in here. I said, well, you got well, one got, right behind you. That's a motorcycle. <laughs> well, it's still oh. a helmet. Yeah. I dare you to. Hey, I dare you to look, look, look here. I've uh, got it? a target. Okay. Yeah. That's not bad when you're five feet away. What do you do when you have to shoot from farther away? Get a rifle. Tell you what, <laughs> you start running, we'll see. <laughs> see how far. Hey, what I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing anywhere in there that it says DEA Narcos on it. You got to put up where nobody can see it. Well, he's got it behind the picture of the goat. <laughs> He does have a picture of a goat on his wall. Here we are. We're trying to do a podcast, and yet Keith is he's looking for all of his memorabilia. <laughs> he's taking his headphones. That's SOD. SOD. I see SOD, Special Operations. Yeah. All right. Well, can, I see what he's got. I thought I had a narcos in here. Uh, well, and, you will have soon. Put your headset back on. Uh, yeah, Keith. Hello, Keith. <laughs> We're doing a podcast here. Keith, hello. Uh, you will have Trent. soon. You will uh, have soon, I'm telling you. Yeah. As long as it's free, Steve's fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so, so he slammed the badge down. You took one look at it, and it was love at first sight. Well, so, no, no, it, it stuck. I mean, it just 
boom, you know, there's a, that's, that's okay. That's in the thought process. And that's why it looks like that. Yeah. How many other, how many other people think it's worked for? It's a good recruiting tool. Yeah. But well, it's upside, it's upside down New York City badge, ain't it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Now, I think what, ours is right side up. Theirs is upside down. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, how long of a process was it for you then? Now, did that in any way influence your decision to leave the leave the NFL, or what was oh, that no, decision? No, 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 okay. No, it was. You know, that was when I left. I was hurt, angry, and my agent who just a great guy i haven't seen him in a while he's we had dinner when i first came back but great bob warren he's a great guy here and uh uh al davis was calling and bobby bethard was calling from bobby bethard was in san diego and mr al davis, davis of the raiders was, yeah not me they were calling bob and tell keith come on and I told Bob, I go, I'm done. I'm, I've had it. I've spilt my blood. I'm done. And I was ready to move on. And, you know, what was just the for deciding, being hurt. You know, hmm. I was going to say, you know, that's the one thing. You watch some of these documentaries, and I feel sad, really bad for a lot of these guys that are, every day they get up, they got to ice their back. They've got to do stuff. I mean, just the toll on your body. Were you at that point to where it was that bad or were you afraid it oh, was no, no, going to no. get that I, bad? I was, I was emotionally hurt. Not okay. I mean, I'd had a lot of surgeries. I think I'd had 14 surgeries by then, but some of them, you know, some of those are scopes and, you know, just change the oil in the knees and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I had some major surgeries too. Like I'd ruptured a peroneus tendon in a foot and I'd have both knees reconstructed and I'd have my hand rebuilt and, uh, or thumb, the, you know, the, the crux of separating us from others is uh, the thumb and all that kind of stuff. But no, I had another three, four years in me of playing. What was the deciding factor? Any, right. Just giving my perception of giving so much and then getting tooled and uh, my last year. And What do you mean by that? You're getting tooled. I mean, oh, I, too old or tooled? Tooled, screwed. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, it was, I mean, it was like every week we'd, we'd play somebody and after the game, I was, you know, I did deep snapping for punts and extra points, field goals. I uh, did that as well my whole career and I got paid good for it. And, uh, but, you know, after games, people were coming up to you from the other teams what's going on? Why aren't you playing? You know, just on and on and on. We're at the Super Bowl, and uh, the producer for sports, I can't remember what network it was, but his name, he was one of my college uh, fraternity brothers, Alan Stone. was He was the uh, producer, and he was like, he goes, Keith, you know, all the 49ers say they know you're playing in the Super Bowl. And he goes, what's going on? And I go, Alan, I, I, you know, I was a team captain. I was a team captain for like seven years. And uh, so it's like, I'm not going to tear, be the disgruntled, disheveled teammate that's spewing all this stuff, you know, before Super Bowl. So it's like, Alan, I can't, you know, I can't talk about it. And he goes, come on, you know, you just give me something, you know, and it's like, I can't. 
And, you know, and he was naming what players on the 49ers were saying, you know, and it was, it was the, their team leaders and stuff. So, you know, and it was, you get that hurt and then financially it would have been really smart for me to keep playing because if I could have gone three or four more years, I could have, well, yeah. And, you know, I would have had, but I had already deferred my paychecks. I think they went for 11 years after I retired. You know, I I got this much this year and I'd, okay, defer five years. Ding, 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 ding. And then the next year it was, okay, now defer those. Ding, 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 ding. So it went, I had deferral payments coming to me from the Broncos for, I think it was 11 years after I'd retired. You know, so that helped because I went from highest paid offensive lineman in the league to a GS7 DEA agent making, what was it, Steve, 37500 I'm not even sure it was that much. With, with, <laughs> with, with three kids, you know, three young kids. So You needed the deferral deferred, payments to be able to live, didn't you? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, so it was, that was, you know, it was that I got screwed. Screw y'all. I'm done. And that mentality. But I thank God that I did that because DEA never would have happened. Because when I finally got it, because they had to do my background, it took them a long time because you got this old guy, this former football player that, you know, to do back, it took, I think it was almost 10 months to do my background. How old were you at the time? When I walked in, yeah, when I walked into Quantico, I... I turned 35 in Quantico. Yeah, and you, so you I, was, I was 34. <laughs> and then the retirement age was 35. And then while I was in there, you know, 55. 55. And while I was in there, it got bumped to 57. 57. Yeah. yeah. So, so I could have gone two more years, but, you know, it never would have happened. I mean, it was because they went on a hiring freeze. The, I, I think it was the class after mine. I think it was the class after mine. They went mm-hmm. on a, what was it, a two, three-year hiring freeze, Steve? Yeah. I mean, it was, it it was, was quite a while. It was a long, so I, it would have never would have happened. And I wouldn't trade DEA for nothing. So what year what? did you start DEA? 92. January of 92. Before we go, before we get into that, I just want to bring up a couple of things here. One, you mentioned that you were the team captain for seven of your 10 years. Yeah, that for our listeners that don't know anything about football, that is a position of honor that your teammates select you. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But so coaches you, try to, or back then they would try to. But I was they try to influence. You know, you, you you have several team captains. I was one of the. I wasn't the only team captain. I was a team captain for seven years. One of the team captains. But that, that's a true position of honor amongst your teammates, that they would oh, think enough yeah, about you to select you. And there's one thing that we didn't cover uh, in your football career that's referred to as the drive. You remember that game? Yeah. yeah. In Cleveland? Yeah. <laughs> you have your blue helmet on there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's all we had. We had no blue helmets. And... Was it scarred up with beer cans and stuff that was coming out of the – is it the dog pound? No, that was yeah, the dog pound. Not, well, not, <laughs> not that game. But in previous games, well, listen, 
Well, I read up on it says it was that game. <laughs> yeah, that was the 98-yard drive, right, in like five yeah. minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and but what it was is they were throwing the dog, the dog biscuits weren't bad, and uh-huh. so they were throwing dog biscuits when you're down at the dog pound, and then uh, they threw some eggs too because yeah. one of John's biggest laughs, <laughs> he goes, "I got hit right, you know, you got your helmet, and then you got your face mask, uh-huh. and I got hit right, like right forehead, <laughs> right on the forehead, right above the." You know the bar, your <laughs> helmet, face mask, and yeah. it, and the egg is running down my face, my face mask, and, and we're in the huddle. And he, John said he was because he was right across from me, and he said he's looking at me, and I'm all serious, you know, and, and not doing anything, and the egg's just running down like this, and he just bust out laughing, you know. He, just, he said he couldn't keep a straight face, he couldn't, he, he had to laugh, and. and Unfortunately, so that, that was, was the best arm on the Cleveland Browns team, and he yeah. was in the stands. <laughs> and and every, everything was fine then, you know the, the dog biscuits and because you just you you just held your, you know you kept your face down and uh-huh. it is hitting on you, you know it's loud stuff. But then they threw a AAA battery that hit my helmet, Dang. and that hit my helmet and it fell to the ground. And the ref looked in and saw it, and he goes. And then we had the wind at our backs. Then we had to turn around and go the other way against the wind because of the battery. Because when they started throwing triple, you know, you get your shit that put an eye out, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah. you know, so it's it's. But uh, and I don't know if that was the Super Bowl that I mean the the championship game that one, or if it was just a separate another game we had in Cleveland where all that shit happened. But, uh, well, in the, in, the was, 80, yeah. in the 1986 AFC championship game between you guys and Cleveland, you're credited with a statement, a statement that, uh, may have energized the team. To oh, get we, were back laughing, on focus. we were laughing pretty, pretty good on that one. But it basically we we're down there and, uh, there was a timeout and John was on the sideline with coach and, uh, so we're we're in the huddle and the Browns are all in their huddle and uh, we're standing there and it's timeout and I, I look over and they're all looking at us laughing, you know, because they've it's not looking good. Yeah. And uh, so some of our guys are kind of looking. You can see some of the guys are kind of like down. And I go, look at them motherfuckers. I go, they they don't know it, but we got them fuckers right where we want them. <laughs> And I mean, everybody just busted out laughing. I mean, seriously laughing. And then you can see the Browns guys, they're looking and it's like, kind of like pissed them off. You know, like, what are they? They're laughing at us, you know? And and then John came back in the huddle and they go, what? You know, because everybody's, you know, we're all just laughing. And, you know, it's one of those, it, it wasn't planned. It wasn't, right. you know, it was just spur of the moment, you know. But- and, and the reason it, I'm bringing this up. It turned out really good. It turned out really good. Yeah, because you got to turn God. around and, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> won the game. But yeah. the reason I'm pointing it out, here's, this is your rookie re- year, right? 1986? Or is this your second oh, year? Oh, no, no, no. Shit, I was six years, seven years in. My rookie year was 80. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so. That was math, math wasn't Murph's strong suit in college, as got, you can tell. I've only got five fingers on one hand, you know, so I can't. If we go, no, you actually five, have four fingers and an opposable thumb. But that, you know, it's a minor difference. <laughs> or go ahead. 
But the, the reason I'm bringing this up now is this is the, you know, what we're getting ready to go into in Keith's DEA career is leadership principles here. You know, you're, I mean, you are down and out. You're getting shit thrown at you on the field. You got the other team laughing at you. It looks like there's no way to win the game. You're in a championship game, AFC championship game, and you've got the presence of mind to come up and say something funny. Whether you intended it to or not, that's what broke the tension and the despair on your team in the huddle that brought you guys back to win. And then you're well, being selected. You got you to give uh, number seven a little credit. What was his name? Yeah, uh, John. John Elwood. <laughs> we will send him that clip. John Elwood, said by the former vice president for security of the Denver yeah. Broncos, Elwood yeah. of the Blues Brothers. But yeah. here's, here's a guy, that, you know, too, that you're repeatedly being selected to be a team captain, which shows the outstanding respect your your teammates have for you. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, you're getting to hear how you're getting ready to hear how this is going to continue on into his DEA career. I just. You don't give yourself credit, Keith. You never have. Uh, you worked for me. I was blessed to have you in the group, but you never wanted to toot your own horn. So I'm going to toot your damn horn for you today. That's code. Be careful what he means by that. So, well, if well, you were I thought in Kansas, I, had to work, I thought. Well, never mind. I'm not going to go there. Not that there's anything wrong, wrong with that. With that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if you were in Kansas, it might mean something different. But Keith knows exactly what I mean. All right. Well, hey, let's get into the good stuff because. Um, we have to always ask one question of the people who go through the DEA Academy. When you graduated, by the time you graduated, how many memos did you have to write, Keith? You had to have been picked on a little bit because these instructors know when, you might oh, be a big guy, but no. I got the power. When I when I first got there, they were all after me. They it was, and I was told uh, our uh, class coordinator was Tina Lewis. Matt, was it Matt Lewis's? Matt Murphy, Tina Murphy. Oh, Matt. There you go. Okay. Matt and Tina Murphy. Tina Murphy was our class uh, coordinator. And she pulled me aside. It's probably after, I don't know, four weeks, five, five, four or five weeks of the academy. And uh, she was going, we were, we were doing one of those runs. I don't know if, it, I don't think it was the, the FBI lollipop trail, whatever it was, but, uh, uh, yeah. uh yellow brick road, yellow brick road. And, uh, but anyway, we're, we're doing a, a long distance jog or a distance jog. And she's like, Keith, can I ask you a question? Yeah. And uh, I go, sure. And, uh, she goes, are we too hard on you guys? I go, no, yeah, I go, no, ma'am. Uh, uh, this is you're you're not, it's, I go it's not easy but I go it's it this is not too hard I mean the, the physical part of it the mental part of it, it's I go I go I've been through 10 training camps and I go that's hard I yeah. go what you're doing here it's you're pushing it but it's not it's cuz it, there was accusations being made by some people and uh, so I guess that's the reason that she was asking me that and uh against them as the instructors and uh and she goes well she goes i don't know if you noticed but uh we've been after you pretty hard in these <laughs> first few weeks and i go yeah i figured so and she goes well in fact we all had a bet who would be the one that would get you to quit and i go i ain't quitting and she goes no we know that we know that <laughs> now but uh 
she goes, it was, that was, so they, yeah, they were, they were after me pretty hard. I mean, it was, but it wasn't anything malicious or it was the way I perceived it and the way I took it and the way I totally felt that the, the focus they had on me was to, let's see if this, I guess I should first advance, they go, First thing they thought I was black, NFL, and I flew my own and I flew my own Learjet (laughs) to Quantico (laughs) to go to the academy. So that was kind of the the stories that were, you know what I'm saying? So anyway. And uh so it was like and then after that I had a blast and I remained respectful and I didn't, I mean, she didn't say, Oh, you got it made or anything. Cause you still had to make all the, oh, yeah. you know, the, the PT stuff and the exams and all the other, and you know, the shooting and all that stuff. And, uh, so it was, but it was, she was, she was just letting me know that the kind of the little bullshit on the side that was kind of over as far as they didn't feel like they needed they knew that I, in my heart, I wanted to be one of them. Right. And it's, so would, so would you agree with what I'm getting ready to say here is that, I mean, here you're coming in a sports star, you know, football, you know, football inside and out, but you don't know much else. That's what you know. And you're, I mean, you've made it to that, that elite, I mean, the freaking elite levels of the national football league. And now you want to come into a position as a law enforcement officer where you're going to have to put up crap, put up with crap from people in the street that you've, you know, anytime before in a football game, you just knock them out on the play, yeah. you know, and on the street, you got to take it sometimes. And where people's lives are. At exactly. Stake. So you'd agree with the, that. I mean, it was, it, it probably, probably were picking on you harder than anybody else, but they wanted to make sure that you could fit into the mold and, and no, ab- no, absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. And I think it sold a lot of my classmates as well as, I mean, shit, there was, uh, who all was in there? There was, uh, Sweeten was one of my instructors. Uh, <laughs> he's a piece of work. <laughs> oh boy, he is. But Hello I mean, you know, and I'm trying to think, uh, damn, uh, Griswold was one of my instructors. Yeah. Steve Griswold. Uh, I mean, oh, some- I thought it was Clark Griswold. I thought we were going to have Lampoon's, <laughs> you know, Christmas vacation. So the Griswolds were at DEA. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm drawing a blank, but there was others that were Kim, Larry Loveless. Uh, You're talking about some legends in DEA now. Yeah. Uh, shit. Like the, who the head of the the academy was, and I mean, it was. And then you know, my coming out, and we're not there yet, but my first boss is Marty Prock. Wow. I have Marty for my first five and a half years on the job. It's like having Whitey Duvall at the Broncos for my offensive line coach, but I only got him for one year. Mm-hmm. I had Marty Proc for five and a half years. So I go back to my original question, which was, how many memos <laughs> did you have to write? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I had to write any memos. Ah, I probably wrote enough for both of us. So don't worry about it. I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I was, I was, I was like drawing no attention. Uh, I, you know. Hey, you, and, you remember how when a new class would come in, they'd have two people from the, the 
class just ahead of them that have already been there for a few weeks come in and address the newbies. And for my class or for the class behind me, I was selected along with uh, another guy that was, he was, he, he and I were the two oldest guys in our class and he'd been a cop down in, uh, was it Waco maybe for a number of years had, had been forced to kill a person down there on duty and good shoot and all that. And we got in there and our message to them was, look, you're going to be here for 13 weeks, whatever it was, go stand on your head. You can stand on your head for 15, for 13 weeks. If they tell you to go shit in the corner, just say yes, or how high, you know, and the day you get your bad and rads and creds, anybody that's pissed you off, go tell them, screw you, pal. I'm out of here. I got my bads and creds. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that was the message, but you had, there was this one overweight young lady. Her question was, how serious are they about the PT? Two days later, she was gone. She found out how serious they were. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that initial part was from Murph's opening chapter of his new book, How to Win for Friends and Influence Enemies. You know, <laughs> screw you, pal. I got yeah, my badge yeah. of creds. You can't touch yeah. me. Badges, we don't need no stinking badges. Uh, but uh, anyway, back to you, Keith. So you, there were a couple things we, we discussed before we started recording that you wanted to talk about. And I, the first one I want to talk about, it, it's one that um, you got written up for in Parade Magazine. Um, and, and I love that too, because I, I had an opportunity to do officer of the year. We, we actually had Mike Neal on, uh, episode eight, I believe it was, uh, the Arkansas game and fish officer involved in the shootout with the, uh, sovereign citizens that killed the two West Memphis police officers. And I got to be a part of that process. And I just love that, that parade would do it at that time, you know, and, um, recognize people. But what I thought was funny was your sense of humor and doing this investigation. So the most interesting case in the world began because you named it Dos Equis. Right. <laughs> Operational name. I mean, well, and, and, that, and, a lot and, of planning went into that. Was that from a bar the night before? What are we going to call this? I don't know. Get me another Dos Equis. That's what it is, Dos Equis. Well, I had a <laughs> I had a bar beer sign of Dos Equis. You know, the neon? Yeah. Which I had sent to Afghanistan, and it got crushed. And... But anyway, that might have had something to do with it too. But it was also, uh, it was a moniker for, I think it was Castilla Sanchez. But uh, anyway, I mean, it was, it was, if you've been to Mexico, I grew up in Texas. The lady that was our, I don't, I don't, I don't want to call her a maid, but she was, she, a housekeeper, both my parents worked all the time and she was our housekeeper and her name was Lita Hernandez. And, uh, she raised me almost as much as my mom did as far as from third grade till I went back for my parents' death and burial in 1986. Lita was part of our family and her husband, Johnny. And uh, they sat at the gravesite with me at my parents' funerals, two months apart. And uh, so I'm not, there's nothing. And I'm I'm adopted and supposedly my one of my grandmothers was full-blown Cuban. So I'm somewhere in the 20, 25% Hispanic Cuban blood line and uh so nothing derogatory towards the hispanic mexican community i love them but i love their beer too and 
<laughs> Dos Equis oh, like was, yeah, I love tequila. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm getting old now, so I gotta cut back on the brown water a little bit, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, it's, uh, but yeah, but anyway, that's the. I wanted to say, yeah, I called it Dos Equis, and I didn't want any uh, negative connotations coming out because it was tongue in cheek, but it was also kind of a moniker for some of the. The higher ups, the bad guys. What I want to do is tell everybody what the outcome was, and then let's work into the outcome because this is what you got written up in Parade Magazine for 2004. Basically, is one of the top cops in the United States. But, but, I was a supervisor. The that whole write up is the guys that made that case work. Which is why you're a great leader, and we get that. But um, this yep. is what I'm. Let's talk about the case. Let's talk about what the outcome was. But still, as representing the group you got the award, but I mean, this is amazing. This is, this is uh 2004 and you led a DEA strike force in Houston against the international drug smuggling Gulf cartel seized 11 million in cash, 14,000 kilos of Coke, 60,000 pounds of marijuana and 200 pounds of meth. 30 people were indicted. That's the outcome of this case. And so let's, let's talk about, because you mentioned one thing and you talked about one of the reasons why you love DEA is people do it for the right reasons. And it was because of the unselfish act of a agent in Dallas that got you started on this whole case. While you're in Houston. Yeah. And I had been in Dallas and that's how I got to be friends with the agent I'm talking about is Schwann Aziz. And I think Schwann's pretty, um, I know he's retired now, but anyway, Schwan was up in Dallas. I had my group down in Houston. I had been at, uh, I had been in Dallas for eight years, eight, eight years, eight and a half years. And then I'd gone and done my headquarters time where Steve and I met. And I'd been in uh, DC for three years, did my headquarters time. And then I went to Houston out of DC and was in Houston. And, Schwann was doing an investigation up in Dallas and they got an intercept. I can't remember if it was a, he was up on phones or if it was a informant, you know, a consensual recording or whatever. I'm pretty sure he was up on phones, but they got the uh, intercept on one of the Gulf cartel guys, the high ranking guy. And uh, his nickname was Hummer. And, uh, he passed that. He go, he called me, and I remember we we're out on surveillance. He called me, and he goes, "Hey, I want to pass you a number for Gulf Cartel." Like he goes, "It's you know," and he was rattling it off, and he's high up, he's documented, and uh, you know, it, it's more in your area, you know, the Houston Field Division, which had a, just about all of the southwest border, and uh, or in Texas, and. Uh, so it's like that's how that started, and then uh, we get up on Hummer, write that affidavit, get up, and uh, then we're getting into Lascano and Castilla Sanchez and uh, Tormenta and all of them. I mean, it's we're hitting it all, and uh, we just we spin and spin and spin and spin, and it's uh, because of a unselfish agent helping out another agent or supervisor that he knew did wire intercepts. Some guys, some girls, they want nothing whatsoever to do with 
Title III intercepts. And uh, me coming up, thank goodness, with Marty Proc as my first supervisor in Dallas, I did wiretaps and did geolocation on phones and all court ordered and uh, using, you know, the swamp box and the trigger fish and all the different equipment. And then I had secret service come and teach me how to do the trigger fish better. And just, it was, it's such a great community. And uh, then you get down and you get this golden egg handed to you by Schwann and the Dallas, Dallas field division. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, we had Pat Medeiros up at headquarters then that oversaw all the title three affidavits and the approval processes from DEA going over to DOJ. And then you had Julie Weislick or Petticord then married Julie Weislick. That was always a go-to at the OEO and boom, we get rocking and rolling and, then all this other just starts opening up where the case went. I mean, I left, I was, I think it started in 2006. If I remember right, I got there in December of 2000. I got there in 2003 to uh, to Houston. And this, I believe it started in 2006. And then I left in December of 2008 and it was going that pretty much that whole time. But, uh, that, the, the investigation, it, it spun in all different directions. My group, my guys I had were, and girls, uh, it was, it was remarkable. I mean, they, uh, we got into radio intercepts, uh, so how were they moving the dope? What what were what were some of the methods that they were mo- using to move the dope? Uh, airplanes, water. Yeah, all of it. Trains, tractor trailers. Uh, tractor trailers. It was. Uh, you you got also got to remember is uh, OCL was brought over. Next one who into, into who OCL is please. Was uh, OCL Cardenas Guillen was the head of the Gulf Cartel. And what, what what was his name? The friend killer. Uh, that, wasn't that it? I think it was. It was uh, something endearing. And but that was because he was partners with this Herrera guy. I think it's Herrera, not her name. Yes, yeah, Herrera. And uh, this is after he had already started the getting. Because was it Decina that was the Zeta one? And anyway, they were going to take over because uh, the old Abrego had been turned over and he was gone as far as head of the Gulf cartel. And so Herrera and Cardenas Guillen were partnered to move in and take it over. And then Cardenas Guillen had Herrera killed. And I think the scene is the one that did it. They were riding in the car and the scene was sitting behind like the Godfather movies and pops him in the head. And so OCL became nicknamed, uh, the friend killer or whatever. Uh, I can't, I can't, amigos. Something. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, he comes over and I can't remember what year, I guess I could pull it up. Hang on for a second. Cause this kind of adds to it because I sat in on all his debriefs. On OCLs. Yeah. 
as we use the magic of Al Gore's amazing internet to find out this information. Um, well, I was there. It's just I'm too old to remember. Oh, I know. Too many, too many, too many tequilas. And what was uh, his name again? John Elwood. Um, yeah. Hang on. Where, where did they see? Let's see. Boston. Well, that's what we're doing. You know, is you're saying things, we're looking them up too. Well, if you pull up the picture of him, you see his little brown suit he's got on when they they're holding him. Mm-hmm. That little brown get up and everything. Yeah, that's in my closet in my house. How did you score that? I told you I was in on all his debriefing. His orange shoes that he had on. If you one of the pictures has his orange shoes, mm-hmm. one of my old sacks has those at his house. I think he was he was. Uh, sending them to the museum in Quantico. But, uh, well, you know, it's like the, one of the agents that actually participated in the capture of El Chapo, this last one, before he got extradited to the United States, still has the bulletproof vest that Chapo was wearing when he was arrested. Yeah. Things like that are pretty cool. I mean, it's, and I would, I would give his, uh, cause it's got all the numbers. You can say, see, it's, it's his, but when the hell did he, or Antonio and Zico, that's, uh, but anyway, he comes across and, uh, during the debriefs, cause Mike Chavarria, who Murph knows. Yeah. Good man. Dear friend. He's, he's retired now, but Mike was, uh, cause OCL didn't speak a lot of English and, uh, Mike was, anyway, we're doing the debriefs when he was being held before uh, we had to turn him over to the marshal service because he came in, I believe it was on a Friday evening, and then we had to turn him in on uh, Monday to the marshals. But we're at the uh, sheriff's department, gave us a whole wing of their jail. And uh, so we debriefed him for days of day, and we are asking him, you know, how you, are you smurfing stuff? And he just died laughing, you know. <laughs> he goes, smurfing, he goes, he goes, no, he goes, the money I move, it's semis. He goes, and it's multiple semis, and it's going all the time. I mean, you know, and so it's uh, – Hey, just as a matter of tradecraft, because a lot of folks um, – just kind of briefly explain what smurfing is, because it used to be that if you moved money at, when it would trigger um, a currency transaction report, it used to be $10,000. So they figured some creative ways around it. So what was smurfing? That's all it was is just – you get multiple people to take well, nine thousand, eight thousand, nine thousand cash to Western Unions, whatever wire transfer places, and smurf it. You know, They're and very, very low, low-ranking people in the organizations. Yeah. And he was, he was just, he was just laughing so hard. And you know, it yeah, because <laughs> if you wanted to do a million dollars, you would need a lot of people if you wanted oh. to smurf a million dollars. And that's that's what he. But I mean, he was laughing, but he looked at us because it was like, "Are you kidding?" And I'm going, "No, we got to ask these stupid fucking questions because yeah. you know the higher ups that be with intel and everything. If we didn't ask this, then that box is not checked, and you know, but it's." Once you once you ask it, and then you start building that rapport, and right. then things start flowing and stuff. And he goes, "Okay, I, I got it, I got it, I got it." And what he just admitted to you was he was involved in the business. Oh yeah, but he, he also the story about uh, uh, shit. They were uh, the 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 Valencias. 
the Mexican Valencias, Arturo and Luis Valencia, wasn't it? They were down. Uh, it's been too long. Around the Pearl City, the, but anyway, I think it was Luis Valencia because that was uh, one of Chavarria's really good cases. And uh, I'm I'm just looking them up real quick. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything right off the top of my head here. Here we go. Let's see. Valencia Cartel. Hopefully this is Mexican, not the Colombian. Millennio Cartel. Remember them, Steve? Wow, I haven't heard that name in years. Yeah. But anyway, it was Armando Valencia and Luis, I think was his brother. But OCL was telling us a story that the brother, and I think it was Luis, it wasn't Armando, but it was Luis. And uh, he lived down the road from OCL. They had a money courier come, and I can't remember the dollar amount. It was $7 million, $11 million. It was in suitcases. And <laughs> delivers it. That's a lot of suitcases. To uh, Valencia. And... Valencia's like, this ain't my money. He goes, it's got to be OCL. So he puts the suitcases in his truck, drives down to OCL's house, and says, hey, your guys screwed up. They delivered your money to me. Here you go. Then on, there was this respect between OCL and the Millennium Group. Then when the other guys wanted to all gang up on the Valencias, the other bad guys, OCL never would do it. So it never would work because OCL wouldn't go in with them because of what, just doing the right thing as a cartel head, you know, and taking your (laughs) 11 million, whatever. Well, it was a lot of money. It may have been 15 million, you know, down, put it in his truck, personally taking it down, saying, hey, this is yours, not mine. They, They messed up. And, you know, so you get you get those kind of stories. It's just like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, and it explains why things were happening that you were hearing rumblings. And then, boom, that's okay. There's uh, there's uh, you think of it from the other point of view, though. If Valencia had kept that money and OCL went to his couriers and said, hey, where's my $15 million? Oh, we delivered that. Where'd you deliver it to? This address. Yeah. Oh, that's where Luis lives. Why? Well, hey, you where's my money? Then you'd had a war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And some dead couriers. Oh, and that's, yeah. I mean, there was a bunch <laughs> of the guys were, yeah, a bunch of the guys were still alive then. You had uh, Pasteur and shit, I can't, it's like Steve saying, it's been too long because all that group that on the Narco Mexico, you know, they were still kind of rumbling around all in before they started, you know, and so all that stuff. So anyway, and doing the interviews with OCL and stuff, you get that perspective. And then through very good DEA work, we got on to the radio comms that the Gulf were using. And then through the goodness of the U.S., the people all involved in fighting I'm having to be careful here. Understood. All the people that are involved in fighting the the narco wars uh, assistance and expertise 
And I mean, it's, it, it's, it went from, okay, we've, they're doing this, they're using this, they're using these type of instruments, they're using this range of frequency. How are we going to get that? And we're doing a meeting with a former military guy that's a contractor that comes to meet with us about, because we're putting trackers on vehicles and we're putting trackers on vehicles because we're intercepting the Mexicans, the the Gulf of people. They're sending up cars to a city in Texas, I'm not going to name, to get armored. And then they're going back down for all these high-ranking Mexicans to use when they're driving around. And we're putting trackers on these vehicles that are going down. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, I'll leave it there. And uh, so, I mean, we're getting all kinds of good stuff going on. So people are really helping us. And then this guy comes in because we're looking for trackers that last longer. And he's, because you got to hardwire them and all this guy. Anyway, and, but then they find them. And so it's like something that's really discreet, very small, that really works. And so he's, we're sitting there and we're telling him kind of what's going on. And, uh, because we got guard guys working with us out of San Antonio too, because they, they got a counter narcotics thing. And uh, so he goes, well, shoot. he goes, I know some people. And he goes, I'll reach out to them and then we'll, and so boom, we get in touch with this group. And their initials wouldn't happen to be uh, CIA, would they? No, no, no. It's D A R P A, something oh, along oh, DARPA. Lines. Like, and uh, anyway, you know, everything is you got all these different buffers and protections and but everybody's helping us because the flow that we have coming for Intel off our intercepts that we're we don't have the restrictions. We're sharing with the law enforcement community and everybody else with Steve, SOD, all these. And uh it's like people are really coming to help us. And then we get other people coming to help us and I remember I was sitting in my office and this guy's talking to me and he is going, he goes, we're 20 years behind you. And since we're not doing any politics, because this guy was a, a 180 in political that I am, but he was talking about his 180 side, fucking up everything for the past 20 years on this one particular thing. And that's where we were killing it. And so it's, we get up and we start monitoring the uh, radio intercepts and it's all OEO approved. All, you know, I mean, it's, we're doing everything by the rules because, and uh, I mean, we are killing it and the, where it's coming from the, the connections with Guatemala, the, connection with cuba i mean staging tons and tons and tons of the you know the powder that's coming into the u.s you know it's and you had all these other programs that i won't name that were this being recorded but uh that we were laughing about earlier that i mean have been going on for years and this investigation just was blowing all of it out of the water 
I mean, all these informants being paid and this reporting and stuff and how it was really happening. I mean, we had the the breakdown of a kilo of Coke at the the lab in Colombia, all the way across through transition countries, you know, Panama and all that, up into either Mexico or coming up in the water and everything, all the way to New York where it sold for $17,500, which it did. 20 years ago and it was like if you were a big organization in new york you got your coke for 17.5 a kilo or 15.5 i can't remember what it was but it was if you knew you were paying more than that you weren't a big organization and i mean it's just the when you get involved in an investigation like that it's just like and steve will tell you i mean it's it's like just holy cow because we're passing all these numbers we're getting from other countries, you know, that are involved. And then there's being coordination with the governments that are good, that'll go after stuff. You're passing that information to them. So it's, I mean, we had one intercept where I went down to Mexico city and I'm segueing, but I think people would like to hear this, but we go down and, uh, I can't remember which investigation. It wasn't this investigation because it was me and I think Chavarria was with me. But anyway, we're down there and back. That's they still had the AFI, and uh, which was like their FBI, but they get recycled every few years and it name changes and stuff. But uh, anyway, we're down at their AFI headquarters in Mexico City, and this young agent, Afi agent, is, and I can't remember his name, is Luis something. He's showing me around, and he shows us all over. And then, boom, you go to uh, Man on Fire, mm-hmm. you know, the Denzel the Washington movie. Yep, yep. And where he's sitting, and they got those red couches where he's sitting at the Afi headquarters or whatever they're calling them there, and they got those red couches and everything. That is an exact, that's, I mean, that was, I was back in there. So, boom. Anyway, this guy just shows us all over, and we go all over Mexico City. And the, uh, if I could remember the damn prosecutor's name, Steve would remember him because he was, and it did wasn't Vasconcelos or anything. No, but I think he did get in trouble, but I don't think it was bad, bad. But he was L- Rigoberto something. It wasn't one of the big names. Everybody's the names that we would know, Steve, that. Right. He was doing stuff. And he would let us use his personal bodyguards to drive us back to our hotel after we had dinner. Anyway, that young Afi agent that was showing us around during the course of our Dos Equis investigation, we were intercepting, you know, Miguel Trevino and his brother and all that kind of stuff. Well, they're getting ready to kill this guy, this Mexican, federal Mexican agent. And uh, they say his name, and I go, shit. I go, I think that's the guy that showed me around when I was in Mexico City. So I pull it up on the internet, and if I can remember his name, and Steve will remember this because what the assassin said to him when they killed him. So anyway, it's like, okay, are we going to tell the Mexicans we got an intercept? And I go, we got to tell the Mexicans. Because they're 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 following this guy. We're intercepting all this stuff, and it and uh, 
they're following him around, getting him set up, getting his timetable, everything done. And so we call the Mexicans, or we call our guys down in uh, Mexico City. And obviously, we didn't call the Mexicans direct uh, and doing the right thing. And we called our guys in Mexico City. We said, here's the shit. And we send them everything. We send them the intercepts with Trevino, with Trevino's phone numbers, everything. You know, and setting him up and doom, and boom, they pull this guy. And I mean, the accolades coming back out of Mexico. I don't know if you remember that, Steve, but uh, it was just like they couldn't believe it. It was like your heroes. Well, DEA was hero. Right. And, and and rightfully so. But then they got the guy anyway. But when they finally got him, and I, I can't remember if it was a month later, two months later, or whatever, but they kill him. But the guy walks up to him and says, today is your day. I don't know if you remember that, Steve, but that was all over everything because the people standing around overheard the assassin and he shoots him right in the face, you know? And, uh, why was but, this guy, you know, why was he targeted? Uh, he wasn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. Was he, yeah, was, he was, was he dirty before or was he just not, did he was just not cooperating with them saying, look, I'm not going to do your dirty work. That's what I hope it was. And, okay. you know, it's, I think I should leave it there because, you know, it was because he had done a lot of stuff because and you go back to the red couches in Man on Fire, all that kidnapping ring and everything, that was all real. All legit. I mean, those those war walls and all that information about all that stuff, that was all ongoing while I was down there when this guy was showing me around. He showed me around and all that. Where all the kidnapping for the Man on Fire stuff you know, it's all based on true stuff. And we all know who the, the guy that was strapped over the car, which he was still alive. He was the one that was just, he was the head of the ring. And for our listeners here, I know you're probably thinking, just spit it out what you're talking about. We're being very cryptic in this because a lot of this is still classified, you know, and, and the drug traffickers, they always have better equipment because they have better money. So we don't want to give up anything. Plus I'm pretty sure Key's still under some non-disclosure agreements with the U.S. government that have put for his another ass in sixty prison. years, as we discussed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. It was that's, that's why it's not coming out explicit what we're doing here. So, I mean, so then we're, I mean, things like that are happening. I know that uh, Karen Tandy was the administrator, and she's down in uh, uh, Guadalajara, and she called up and she wanted to know what we were getting on our intercepts if they had made any comments about her travels down there and uh, <laughs> you know it was i mean it was that, that's how good of an investigation it was but i mean karen and i were good friends it started off real rough on the meta case because of the connections with uh, the columbia and everything there was and, this like a badge of honor just to be in a wire you know being an intercept so hey they're targeting me too was that was that some kind of like badge of honor or was it true did they have a true security concern uh, Karen Tandy. For, for... Oh, no, no, no. Absolutely. I mean, when you got the head of a, a presidential appointee traveling internationally. And the head you know, of DEA. Yeah, the head of DEA in Mexico, in Guadalajara. You, what could go wrong, right? Well, I mean, it's <laughs> like if, if, you, if you weren't checking on – and I'm sure if there's any in Arizona or – you know, San Diego, any intercepts going on anywhere, they were checking to see if there's been any rumble, any talk about the administrator traveling. But, you know, she called and I, you know, and it was, 
you know, so it was, it was good. All you have to do is watch uh, Clear and Present Danger with Tom Clancy, Harrison Ford to see that this shit is real. I mean, that was in the movies, but the point about it is, is that the cartels have been working against us and other agencies. They're targeting people. They want that kind of intel. They want that kind of information. So they're hitting us as hard as we're hitting them. Um, But you, so how long does Operation Dos Equis go on before it's over? It's still going. Still going. Officially, the in that investigation is done because you indicted 30 people yeah but we also we got uh three people designated as CPOTs. i think that was the first time that had been done as instead What's of a being C-pot? a sing, it's a consolidated priority organization target, target what it's, yeah yeah it's it's, uh, it's, a, it's osadef uh, DOJ, DEA, FBI. These are, they're the top tier traffickers that we're targeting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you got to do all kinds of paperwork and write-ups and everything to get them designated. And I think back then it was, you know, one organization, one CPOT. And we did a submission for three. And it was Tormenta, Castilla, Sanchez and uh, Lascano, you know, so you had two golf guys and the Zeta guy that we submitted and it was all off our intercepts that we documented everything and proved it. And it was approved as uh, a triumvirate of uh, CPOTs leading that organization. And then they split up, but so we got that done. And then uh, bunch of information and knowledge and then you know they do the arrests and as many as you can and all that kind of stuff and it spread out and there's other offices that were involved and some of those kept going but once you start getting big time arrests you start getting cooperation and that cooperation leads to another arrest and then more cooperation another so it's still going on because they see how much time they're facing, right? They start when you right. start adding up the charges, and you start going, "Son, it's life in prison at a place you're not going to like." So maybe we should make your cooperation known to the United States Attorney. Yeah, and then some of them, it's like, and it's the one great thing about DEA is the way that we handle confidential sources, informants, and that it's bar none, we're hands down better than probably all the rest combined. And I'm including all monikers. Uh, and I've seen it in the war zone and everywhere else. But uh, DEA does it better than anybody. And they have for a long time. And they it's because we've learned from our mistakes and what works and what doesn't work. And you know, but anyway, uh, your, I mean, your description of how other agencies were coming to you guys in Houston because of the technical means that you were using and the successes that you were enjoying is very similar to when we had uh, Zach, Rob Zach on here. And you, you remember him from SOD, Keith, nobody can pronounce his last name except him and his mom. Zahara Sherevitz <laughs> or something like that. Zahara yeah. or something. Yeah. But if you remember, you know, uh, the national security advisor challenged DEA. Hey, you guys think you're such big shots. You know, what about this merchant of death, Victor Boot? Can you get him? And DEA looked at him and said, yeah, we can. And they did. And you know who got him? Do you know who got him? Who? Tony Hinton's group in Houston. Oh, yeah? 
They're the ones that were running and gunning everything. Now you hear SOD, 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 and I love SOD. I worked there three years and I always worked with SOD. But Tony Hinton and his financial group, OSDEF Financial Group in Houston, they're the basis for all that. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. And you know Tony Hinton. You don't, he, they're not a better guy. And it's just like I'm saying, DEA is, it's, they, they've got some really good people. They do. And I mean, and Keith is not giving himself credit. This is one of the, now, so we worked together. I was, uh, we were both in the Mexico Central American section of special operations. Um, and I guess you're not giving yourself credit because this is one of the hardest working individuals I've ever met in my life. There were times um, <laughs> when we were on a hot case, if things were happening, Keith was in the office 48, 72 hours straight without going home. I would wake up and I'd have text messages from him at 3 a.m. in the morning, still in the freaking office. This is a dedication, and this is typical in DEA. This is not an isolated incident where one guy's outworking everybody else, but that's the dedication you see. And I just I got to brag on you. I was going to at the beginning of this uh, interview, Keith. Uh, but as serious as all this was, we also had a uh, practical joker side, and Keith was one of the leaders in that. Um, shame on you if you left your computer on and walked away from your desk, or you left your BlackBerry uncoded and Keith got his hands on it. Because it Why, really would there didn't be some matter. messages go to the administrator? Dear administrator. No. Oh, no. I, he went, we, he we went had, to the administrator. We had the administrator transfer. <laughs> A couple of sacks. <laughs> he went. Like, he went in the office. He went in the office of the special agent in charge at SOD. Who? That was Jimmy Craig. <laughs> no, it was uh, oh, Joe, Joe, Joe Keith. Keith. Joe Keith. Yeah, I forgot and, Joe's. I forgot I got you, him too. Joe Keith is a legend. He is a legend. Yeah, in he Long really Florida, is. He really has is. The utmost respect of everybody, and he walked away from his private office. And left his computer up, and Keith is sending love messages from the sack to other agents in the facility. <laughs> and you got to understand, I mean, this is such a serious center with the biggest cases in the world going on. <laughs> and you got Mr. Football in here that everybody's afraid of because he's physically intimidating. And you know what? He's in there going, you motherfuckers, we got them right where we fucking want them. I got them right. I got the sack right where I want him. Yeah. But the th great thing about it is you got, and I mean this, you got these guys that are so respected and done so much. Yeah. And they'll be the first ones laughing their tails off yep. saying, you got me, good job. You know, and... <laughs> I mean, think about it. He, he went in the administrator. This is a presidentially appointed position. <laughs> he went in her office. No, no, no. She was in Afghanistan. I had her BlackBerry. Everybody oh. knew she was in Afghanistan. I got her BlackBerry. <laughs> Kelly Dillinger was helping me. And we, well, we you I just think, dimed him right out. Well, yeah. <laughs> I got to. And because uh, she had to, we had to reset it or something because she was traveling whatever and i go give it to me kelly he goes no and i go give me the blackberry i go who are we going to transfer and, and, and the thing about it the guys that we transferred they knew they go we knew it was you we knew yeah because they I got transferred she, to a tumwa iowa you're going to the resident agency in a tumwa well i think i i think i transferred all three super sacks back there four and uh, they were going uh, to like 
Dallas and Denver, and they were going from the biggest. Not anything wrong with Dallas or Denver. Just they were smaller, much smaller. They were going from a super sack to the what, little place. What rank were you at this time? Your GS what? As, were you a 13 or 14? Oh, no, no. I was either 14 or 15. Because I, I finished up with 15. I think I might have been a 15 then. You know, and, and a sack, that's a, that's senior executive service within DEA. That's a general. It's a, a brigadier general. It has to be approved Government. by the attorney yeah. general yeah. to yeah. get that position. But but as a GS fifteen, you're one step right below an SCS one, right? So you're right. You're yeah, the next yeah. level would be to get, become an SCS. Well, and so you're on the administrator's BlackBerry transferring people. Um, what else are you doing? That's it. I mean, it's. I mean, as far as the joke part of it, uh, I got to tell one more story. We're so we're all in SOD, and somebody's getting transferred, and we always had our going away parties, and and we had some really good parties. We did, and, and we're at some. Uh, remember that bar we used to go to down in Chantilly, uh, and they had—I think they had a, a basement that we were allowed to use, and we could have a private oh, yeah, area yeah, down there. Yeah, can't remember the name of the bar, but we're down no, there one night, and and so uh, Keith and I—I'm the ASAC over this Mexico Central America section. Keith's a staff coordinator, and then there's another staff coordinator in there named Donnie Hansen. Now, you know, I'm a <laughs> I'm a Tennessee West Virginia boy, so I'm a redneck hillbilly, and you got a Texan here, a big Texan, and Donnie's from New York. <laughs> and he's, Donnie's Keith's what you're six four, I'm six two, and Donnie's probably five nine. But one, he's a hell of an investigator. I'm not taking yeah. this is just the funny part. And he comes by, and it was kind of a running joke that everybody in the group would give me shit because I have a country accent, and you know I'm from the south. And they're like, "How'd you get up here, you freaking hillbilly?" And so Donnie's just giving me down the road, and it's all in good fun. We're having fun, and and Keith comes walking by, and and everybody's had several pops, maybe a couple too many. I'm not sure, but he comes by, and I said, Keith. He said, what's going on? And I said, Donnie's fucking with the boss. And he gets like right in Donnie's face, has to bend over and get in his face. And he said, you don't ever fuck with the boss. And he gives him a four-inch chest shot for this, with his big, beefy, bear-sized paw, sends Donnie flying across the room. He hits the crash bars on the exit door. Alarms go off. <laughs> Donnie's over going, you know, knock the breath. <laughs> I'm so sorry <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't was, intentional. Uh, wasn't intentional. But I, yeah, that's all that we love. That's, but that was the uh, tightness of the group. That's the camaraderie that you have to be a part of. You know what we're talking about, Morgan. You got to be part of yeah. it to understand well, all I can what think it's of all is about. Keith was having a flashback. It's like, wait a minute, ball is hiked. They're trying to get Elway. I got to take this guy out. I'm, I'm taking out the guy who's going after Elwood. Whack! Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so good many stuff. good stories. And, and yeah, there, there are, there are, and I mean the serious, the serious work that you're doing. But there's some good times as well. So well, you we gotta have some. So I'm making a command decision here. We were going to talk about Afghanistan, but we're running. You know, we're kind of running long. So you know what we're going to do, Keith? We're going to save that. We're going to bring you back. We're going to talk about that because we want to do some follow-up. We want to get John L. You are tasked now with getting John Elwood on this podcast with you so we can talk about <laughs> the, the drive, the game. Well, good luck on that because if I – I'll ask him, but I doubt if he'll do it. Just give us just give us 10 minutes. Just share the seat with you. Give us 10 minutes, and we just he can say good things about cops and stuff like that, and we'll make well, it worth his while. He can tell us Keith Bishop's well, yeah, that's, that's the reason I don't think he'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
You mean the cop stories or the bishop stories? The bishop stories. Okay, let's let's close out with. Uh, we want to talk about what you're doing now, but okay, uh, yeah. what's you guys had to pull some practical jokes? Did you ever? Did you ever pull a good one on John, John Elway? Did you ever get him good? No, no, I got uh, I got some of the other guys pretty good. Like I was telling y'all about Gratishar and them doing all that uh, smoke bombs and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. Randy was definitely, I mean, just he's terrified of snakes. And uh, there's nothing wrong so, with that. And uh, so I got one of my. Hunting bunnies, hunt, hunting bunnies, bunnies. bunnies. Yeah. <laughs> you go out hunting with bunnies. You hunting guys do bunnies. some strange stuff in Texas. I'll tell you. I don't. I don't. Colorado. I don't. After, hey, after Afghanistan, I don't hunt anymore. Um, yeah, that's. But uh, anyway, I got one of my hunting buddies, and Gratisher was being ruthless to me. So we were still in Fort Collins. So this is my second year, and uh, he got me a hog nose, about a three foot. I don't know three foot, three and a half foot hog nose. And hog noses are, I mean, they're mean. I mean, they, what, what is a hog nose? It's, it's pull it up on the computer. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's got a, it's nose is up like, it looked like a hog nose, but, uh, they're non-poisonous, but, uh, they are aggressive. And, uh, so he caught me a hog nose and, brought it to me and or I met him and I got it and I went up and I got into the locker room and they had I wish I had shit normally I'd have something in here but you've got these mesh nylon weave uh laundry bags that you put all your your jock, your uh, <laughs> t your t shirts, shorts. I already see and, where this is and, going. Yeah, and your socks in, and you turn it in, and so all your stuff is contained. It's got a little tab with your number on it, and the equipment guys wash it, and they bring it back and they stick it in your locker. And so there's not all these millions of socks and everything. Everything's it's just boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. So I get there before the guys get there, and I get that hog nose, and I put it in Randy's laundry bag. Oh, jeez. And I hang it up in his locker. <laughs> and uh, so he had all the linebackers were in oh. one little section, and then we were in the next section, but they had, you know, the corrugated metal, whatever, you know, the wire, like a barbecue grill, you know. Yeah. Old style kind barbecue of an, Kind grill. of an open space between Old style, sections. you know, the little diamonds, you know. Yeah. That, you know, you cut out and that'd be your grill for your, <laughs> well, that was the separation. So you could hear everything, you know, what's going on. And so we're sitting over there and Randy and they'll come in, you know, Swenson and all the freaking linebackers, Tom Jackson, all them. And, uh, <laughs> they're over on their side. And then you hear of it that we're sitting over on this, side, our stuff. It's the last side. We're sitting there. We're just waiting. And we hear this <laughs> blood curdling scream, you know, and what he'd done is you had a wood bench that went the length of the, where the lockers, lockers were on each side of the wall, you know, and it was, it's not a big open space, it was a long, like hallway, double wide hallway, but then you had a wooden bench posts into the ground, you know, concrete floor, and then you had metal lockers on both sides. And you hear this because what he'd done is he had taken the bag out, undid the tie at the top, and then dumped it out on the 
the uh, wooden bench, you know, that's sitting there. And then out comes freaking Hognose. And he just screaming. And so I take off running because I don't, I don't want him to hurt. I don't want, I'm, I'm laughing, but I don't want him to hurt the snake, you know. So I get around break. there. It's a freaking snake. Yeah, but I, I get around there. <laughs> And I grabbed the snake and he's just screaming and I stick that thing right in his face. And I go, Randy, are the jokes done? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, are they done? And I'm holding that hog nose right in his face. And he goes, yes, yes. I swear. Oh. And so I got him out of there and everything. So that was. Uh, Were the jokes done? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, now, my it, God. it all ended from that. And then another one, uh, another one that was uh, a good one was uh me we went on a cruise and it was john elway's sister that his his twin sister that passed away god bless her but back then she was doing stuff and she got us on the love boat oh yeah it, 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 i guess there was two of them there was the pacific princess and the island princess they were like twin boats and they filmed on both but we were on the island princess or whatever it wasn't the Pacific Princess, but it was the twin that they also filmed. Anyway, we go on a cruise and we go from, uh, it was a Mexican cruise around the Yucatan. Uh, oh, no, not Yucatan. Yeah. Yeah, the Yucatan Peninsula. Acapulco. We got on, we went to, we go, we get to Acapulco. I think because we, we went to that restaurant where they do all the diving and all that stuff, you know, the the night diving onto the, at that whatever that famous restaurant in Acapulco. So we went to Acapulco and then you did like Mazatlan and you just dook, 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 all the way around. And then we get off the boat in, uh, in LA. And uh, so I think we flew into Mexico city. Then we had to take a bus to uh, Acapulco. And then seemed like we got on another plane in Acapulco. No, maybe it's just picking up the bags. But anyway, the whole reason for the story is we're down there in Mexico, and I buy a whole bunch of big firecrackers and bottle rockets. And so I'm taking them back. And uh, so we get to L.A., and I've broken all this big – because big bottle rockets had big sticks on them, and I broke all those sticks off. So all I had was a whole bunch of bottle rockets without sticks and a whole bunch of big, like – they weren't M80, but they were very loud firecrackers. And they're all in my luggage. And then we get there, and then they got all the dogs out, you know, looking for the dope coming in. From, and I was like, oh, shit, they're going to get me for firecrackers. <laughs> yeah. And they passed right through. So for the next two years in training camp, people were terrified to go to the <laughs> restroom because they knew they were going to get a bottle rocket or a firecracker thrown on them. But anyway, you'd have to do urine tests. And so they'd have these guys in lab coats that come. And this is one of the, our trainers, Steve Ananopoulos, who just retired last year, 42 years with the Broncos, whatever. But they had a bunch of the, and they'd get all these urine sample cups and they'd be on a, like a first cafeteria, you know, your plate platter thing. And then they'd take all those into the restroom and then they'd do all the tests and stuff. Well, 
one of those lab guys was walking with that tray of piss and I, I threw a, one of them firecrackers over the retaining wall in camp and that thing went off and he was covered in piss. I mean, his whole white jacket was all yellow. And, 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 and Ananoff just loves that. I mean, he, 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 goes, oh, he goes, that was funny. You know, and the guy was so pissed. Literally, <laughs> literally yeah. Uh, and then the last one I'll say was another one of the big practical jokers was on the team was defensive back Steve Foley, who's still a good friend. I see him and his wife Cindy. But uh, anyway, he was always he was buddies with, uh, and he's a Kunas. I mean, he was New Orleans kid, and so he's you know snake. None of that shit bugged him, and he was a big hunter and stuff, and. So anyway, he, Swenson, Bob Swenson, and Gratishar, they were the three amigo tricksters. And I hadn't got, I hadn't got uh, Foley yet. So we were having our picture day at the stadium at the Old Mile High. And uh, I was, you know, I, I got black powder guns and all that kind of stuff. So I had, obviously, I have a 50 caliber and I got a 54 caliber black powder. And I had to have 54 because of my number. So... Anyway, I go and I do a double charge on my 54 caliber and just, you know, with wadding in there. And uh, so we're doing our picture day and everything. And then one of the, you know, you can't do this shit anymore. But, you know, the, the, the <laughs> there's a Denver, reason. <laughs> yeah, I know. The, but there was a Denver cop that was underneath the stadium and, you know, in the walkout where we were. And I said, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I just want to let you know so you don't have to worry about it and everything. I go, I got black powder. I go, you know, there's nothing loaded in it, but Foley's going to come through there and I'm going to play like I'm pissed at him. And then, you know, I'm going to shoot him. And he goes, oh God, this is going to be good. You know, <laughs> and so uh, Foley comes by and he's, 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 he's good 20 yards from me. 25 yards from me and uh i've got this big old black powder musket you know and uh i go foley and i yeah you, you might have done this and he looks at me and everything and i go and i aimed right at him but then before oh i pulled God. it before i pulled the trigger you know i lifted it up i was up over his right shoulder uh-huh. yeah it would have been his right shoulder and i hit that thing and he like disappeared i mean it, you know that black smoke from a double charge you know and his knees gave out his knees gave out he was like down and uh oh i was crying so he never screwed with me anymore either so oh. that took care of gratishar and swenson and foley with those the snake and then the black powder Okay, how many people are left on your list? I'm just a little curious here, Keith. Damn, I'm glad I never pissed you off. <laughs> but that was, you know, having fun, you know. And then I set up one of my buddies down in Midland, took Steve and a bunch of his family. They went on a big old uh, pheasant hunt down in North Panhandle of uh, Texas, and my buddies took him around doing that stuff. So I made up for it. Steve and I are still good friends. <laughs> Maybe we ought to get him on the show. <laughs> He's probably still traumatized. We'll have to get the Dr. Phil. Was on. Let's get real, people. Let's talk about the trauma you endured at the hands yeah. of Keith Bishop. But you, but oh, you can't do that anymore, you know? Right. And even the, the, the police officer, it was it was all fun and good. You know, it, yeah, obviously, if something would have hurt, you know, then that's a whole other thing. But it's a fun and game right. until somebody loses an eye. Yeah. 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 yeah I think you're going to ask. Go ahead, Morgan. I think you're going to ask the same question. What's that? You mean, like, what's he doing now? 
Yeah, yeah. Or either that. I just really wanted to find out. Okay, uh, either one of us on your list because I got to know this shit, pal. I got to start preparing. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> okay. That was my first question. But then, no. What we want to wrap up with is tell it. Hey, tell us what you're doing now. So you were at, how long were you at DEA, and uh, you're back at the Broncos now? Yes, I uh, I spent 20 years with DEA. I'm blessed. Uh, did eight years, eight and a half years in Dallas, three full years in uh, D.C. at SOD, five years in Houston, uh, supervisor, and then uh, Afghanistan for 38 months. And I was in a couple of ambushes in Afghanistan, and in one of them, it was it was a pretty good one. I mean, both times I was with the Norwegians and, uh, it was funny cause I was with two different squadrons of the, the Norwegian FSK and they're great, highly respected special forces guys, but both were two separate squadrons and they were okay. Which, which tick was worse, you know, uh, was ours worse or there were, so it's, you know, it's that same old, same old. It's just, but, uh, What's the reason for this? Uh, so it was the first, I got to remember which troops in contact it was. I think it was the first, first one. Yeah, it was, it was the first one. Cause, uh, it, it, it was bad. Anyway, they're, they're shooting and stuff. And so we're grabbing these, you got all this kit on, which, no, up there go the headphones again. <laughs> that thing, it That's weighs plate. a ton. And you got your ammo, and you got your radio, and you got your helmet. Hey, okay, Keith, you got, yeah, yeah we can't, we don't okay, understand, so. I don't read lips, so you, you had the plate carrier there, so that thing's pretty yeah. heavy. You got your guns, you got your ammo. Yeah, and you got your radio, and shit, I, I could do a Taliban thing here for you in a second. And, uh, <laughs> Hang on. Ow. <laughs> we got our headphones off again, everybody. I'm not sure what he's going to come up with. I don't with think he time. understands the concept of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting his beanie out. Uh, he's got his Taliban beanie. Got my Masood hat. <laughs> or. That my Russian that's your Russian. Yeah, I was going to say that's Russian, man. You and that thing didn't fit dispute. you. So that thing sat right on top of your head. It didn't go over the. <laughs> well, that's that's off. That's off the field. I mean, uh-huh. you know, and uh, all this stuff's going on. And Kelly Dillinger was with me on that the, this first one. And I remember one of the guys. We had driven through this village the night before, and uh, Kelly was driving one of our vehicles. I was driving the other. And we had borrowed night vision from the Norwegians because we had the old, old stuff and they had the good stuff. So anyway, we drive off through this village and we're looking for this bad guy, a really bad guy. And uh, we're using the geolocation equipment and uh, which trigger fish we use in the U.S. And we drive all through it, all through it, all through. We get a couple of hits, but we don't get any success. So we all go back to camp because it's becoming daylight. Cause you have to do everything at night. And, uh, <laughs> so we're back and then they're like, yeah, 
to me and Kelly, you guys did great. How long y'all been driving in nods? And we go, last night was our first time, you know, doing it whole night. And they're like, what? So they're like, okay, we're driving tonight. And so they're driving us that this next night. And one of them drives off into a Creek, you know, and uh, the big, you know, Norwegians and I love them to death. I'm still in contact with them, but, uh, they drive out in the creek, but then th- that's when the ambush starts is when they drive out. So there's shit, they're shooting and stuff. Kelly is down, and we're, gra- we're having to grab big rocks to try to bolster the land cruiser, the armored land cruiser we're in, to try to keep it from rolling over. And all this shooting's going on, and Kelly, th- like, he's looking at me and going, Keith, quit fucking around with the firecrackers. And I go, Kelly, th- that's not firecracker they're shooting and he's going oh shit he comes flying up out of there and uh but anyway so we're moving all these big rocks and everything and you got all this kit on well i get a really bad abdominal hernia and uh all and steve will tell you when you go overseas and especially to a war zone the physicals you have to go through before they do all the approvals i mean they check you for everything and so it was like I'm hitting up my insurance and they're, are you sure you had a hernia? You know, it's like, yes. so anyway, <laughs> I'm coming back over for that thing. And, uh, well, maybe it wasn't, but I'm coming back for leave for some reason. I'm thinking it might've been, the uh, the award thing. But, uh, anyway, I'm coming back over. I call, the Broncos that said, Hey, does your doctor, cause I wanted a Bronco doctor cause they've got very good doctors to do my hernia repair. And we looked it up and yeah, they accepted Giha, which was my insurance back then. And, uh, so boom, I make arrangements and I'm coming. Then, uh, Elway gets wind that I'm coming back in and he goes, he goes, Keith, he goes, while you're here, he goes, there's something I want to talk to you about. You know, you got to come over for dinner. And I go, okay, if I have time, I swear I, I will. And so I get there and then the doctor does. And it's, it wasn't a, a, what do you call it? A scope repair. They had to cut me, put mesh in, all that kind of stuff. And so it was a good hernia. And uh, so I go over to, and then the doctor says, you're not going back to Afghanistan for a week. He goes, you're staying in the U.S. for seven days minimum. I go, gotcha. So then I go over to John's and that's when John hit me. He goes, uh, he goes, he goes, here's what I'm thinking. And we just, cause we usually have a glass of scotch together. And, uh, so we just got two glasses and I just taken like two sips and he goes, okay, here's what I'm thinking. And uh, he goes, I want you to come back and be the head of security for the Broncos with me. And, and his wife, Paige, and they're all saying, you know, you got to come, you got to come. And so I go, oh, well, you know, what's it involved? And, and he goes, da 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 So I go, okay. I go, because I just told my Thai wife's family that uh, once I retired from DEA, I was going to relocate to Thailand. And then the one of the contracting companies that I was working with over there, the owner of it had said, Keith, you got a job for life as long as I'm. 
So I was going to go from DEA to doing the contracting work all over the world and live in Thailand. And I mean, I just made those promises to <laughs> my wife's family. And, uh, Those are your and, and let me do this podcast right now. Where are you located at here, Keith? You in Denver? <laughs> I, right now? Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Denver. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We saw how well that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I go, well, and I t- say all this to John. And he knew, I mean, we stayed in contact. So he knew I had my 20 years in. I was going to put 20 years in. In fact, I was going to put a couple more in until I was mandatory. And uh, so that's – all this stuff. And so I go, John, you know, I've just told, I go, it's really in, in pages like Keith, you got to and stuff. And I go, well, can I, I go, John, can I think about it? And he goes, absolutely. Absolutely. So we sit there and we turn back to the TV and I have two more sips and he goes, fish. I go, what? And he goes, what'd you decide? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's swear to God, true story. And I, go, I believe it. All right. All right. I go, I'm doing it. And he goes, okay. So that, that's how I became head of security for the, for the Broncos. And that was in, that was in, uh, that was right before Thanksgiving of 2011. Then I flew from here after that to Thailand. And then D met me in Bangkok. And then we went up to Con Ken where she's from and neither of her parents speak any English. So we go into the house and I'm sitting there and I go, D, tell your father, you know, what I'm planning and if he approves. And uh, so she's kneeling in front of her father and, you know, the, the Thai respect and Asian respect. I mean, it's, it's, it's neat. But anyway, she's sitting there and she's, you know, she tells her father and, and, he, you know, he well, looks there at the her. Respect. <laughs> hey, I'm, 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 I'm married 12, I'm coming up 11 years, 12 years in reality, 11 years legally, because uh, Buddhist, Buddha, Buddhist ceremonies don't count anywhere in the world, including Thailand, which I didn't know. But uh, that's a whole nother good story. But anyway, so she says that to her father and the father goes, Da 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 And I'm looking and she's like she bows and everything. He looks at me and he kinda and then she turns and I go, What'd he say? She goes, Wife goes with the husband. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was gonna say like, something like you got three minutes to get the hell out of my yeah, house. <laughs> no, I know. I know. I mean it's just wife goes with the husband. Wow. And then he goes, and then you got to pay for a bus to come over and visit. And it's like, you know, it's just, I love him to death. But uh, anyway, that was, that was that. And then that was, I got back into Afghanistan. That would have been, cause that was, no, <laughs> we had done the Buddhist ceremony the year before. And so then I put in for my, uh, what is it? Uh, SMA separation maintenance allowance, you know, cause I was now I was married to a tiger. We had the big Buddha ceremony with, I mean, it went for hours, like all day after a big party the night before with guys from Afghanistan that came in. And, uh, but anyway, gone for, that was in March the year before and applied for SMA and they headquarters just 
laughing on the phone saying, dude, that don't count. That do, that that don't even count in Thailand. And it doesn't. It's you, I was basically my wife and I were boyfriend and girlfriend. So we went to Umpar, which is a justice of peace. We got married officially, got it registered. I went back into Afghanistan, had a meeting with the guys at Afghanistan, told them that what was happening, that I was been made to offer, had to retire. And then I left Afghanistan February, I think, 10th. Flew through Houston, saw my kids, and then came up here and started work. I think it was the 12th or 14th of February I started working here. Would you drive by your kids' house and wave? No, we all went out and got barbecue. (laughs) They all were right. off school and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. They got their own lives, I know. Yeah, right. All right, so how how big is John Elway's house? Is it like two football fields big, you know? He, no, he's lived he's lived in the, that home. I think now it's like close to 30 years. In addition to you being in charge of security for the Broncos, which I know is very time-consuming, um, anything else going on? Supporting charities, doing the Lord's work? What else are you doing? No, we... Anything with uh, survivor benefit, anything along those lines, local law enforcement, state, federal, DEA, obviously, uh, anything along those lines, always, uh, you've got down in Pueblo, you've got the uh, uh, America, Center for American Values, which is uh, Drew Dick's uh, uh, Medal of Honor group down there that uh, they've um, I think I'm on their advisory board but because of COVID my two years of being on is, I've never been on the advisory board because and it's just, it's a I've made some donations small donations to it and I've gone down for various functions and dinners and stuff it's hour and 20 minutes, whatever is Pueblo from here. It's a, any of your listeners that are driving through Southern Pueblo, Colorado, look it up the American center for, or the center for American values. And, uh, they've got all the photos, all the medal of honor recipients and they all come nice. there. And yeah, it's, it's, it's such a, and Drew Dix, who is a recipient and, uh, Vietnam and you look his story up and it's like, Phew. And, uh, but anyway, I've, I, I was supposed to be more involved a little bit, but, uh, it hadn't happened because of COVID since they invited me, which is now it's coming up on two years, but I was talking with one of the guys that's on their actual board of directors who told me that they're going to fire stuff up. And so I'll find out a little bit more on that, but I'll just, uh, taking care of my wife and my kids is and not interfering with them. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, the family in Thailand, we're always a little support there ever, every month because a little bit of from here goes a long ways there. So before I retired from DEA, we'd come out to Denver for whatever it was we were out there for and we connected with you for dinner and, uh, you got to say you took us in to see the Broncos training center. We got to see the two Super Bowl trophies in there. Got to go through the locker room. Three, 
I, I, well, I don't remember seeing. Yeah, I remember seeing two there, out there in but... the lobby. But I uh, got to go back in the locker room, and I remember walking down the hallway there just before you got to the locker room, and there was a huge. I took a picture of it, a huge sign on the wall that said, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. And I can't tell you how many times I used that later in my career after seeing that sign because it just it says so much. But I also remember when we went to dinner, it, it, uh, it might have been that place you were talking about with wings and beer. Uh, we had to drop you at the front door because your hips were just about non-functional. Oh, gosh, so since yeah. that time, all these years later, did you get the hip surgery? I had... Uh... Both hips done in 2012, which is like I got here, and I swear to goodness I hadn't been here a month, and I mean I was dying, but I started dying from my hips, which I thought was my back. I thought it was you know my sciatic and back and all that stuff, but uh, in Afghanistan, I mean it was the whole like the last year I was there, I was like it was painful but anyway i came here been here maybe a month month and a half and i went down to steve Annopoulos, who's the trainer and i said steve check my back i go i'm dying i go i got i gotta get something done so he looks at me and on this guy was he's a trainer for 40 he was a trainer when i was a rookie he was the trainer he take wow. he take my ankles <laughs> for 10 years and i mean it just he's a dear friend and from hugo colorado and it's the great guy greek and uh he looks at me and he goes he goes he goes yes he goes uh, it ain't your back he goes i think it's your hips and i go it ain't my fucking hips i go it's my back and <laughs> he goes well, he goes yeah he goes do you want to bet and i go no i go greek i'm not stupid and uh he goes well i'm gonna send you over to the uh, or Stedman Hopkins guys, they're our orthopedic surgeons, and uh, have them check you. And so, boom, he calls over. I go over, and uh, I'm telling Doctor uh, Bublik, hey, Martin, you know, I, I, it's my back. I go, but Greek wants me, and he goes, okay. And he goes, what did Greek say? And I go, he says it's my hips. And he goes, I, he goes, you know, he he asked me if I wanted to bet, and he goes. Sheesh. He goes, okay. He goes, we'll get the x-rays and I'll come back. And so they do x-rays and I'm sitting in there and he comes back in. <laughs> First thing he says, he goes, Bish, did you bet Greek? And I go, <laughs> no. I go, I'm not stupid. And, uh, you know, Morgan, you got to understand, I've got a K in front of my N now. And uh, <laughs> so... He goes, he goes, he goes, Keith, and he pulls the thing. He goes, there's nothing wrong with your back. He goes, but your hips are gone. And uh, basically, you're bone on bone. And uh, the long story of that is the cipromycin that you took when you got the parasites in uh, Afghanistan, because you got the parasites. And once you got them, it's like, you do whatever you can to get rid of them because it's, it's going through you and it's living organisms and all, you know. So anyway, uh, one of the side effects of Cipro is if you've got damaged cartilage, all that kind of stuff, it eats it. And so, Uh. you know, it's, there you go. And, uh, there's a clue, but anyway, uh, so, they got me lined up and 
Doug Dennis to give him. Anybody needs uh, hip replacements, he's there's a lot of great ones. Doug Dennis here in Denver, he did first. He did it anyway. And always walking by my office, and after I've gone to the doctor and <clears throat> got everything set up for my surgeries, and uh, I go, "Hey, Wood, come here." And uh, he comes to my office. I go, "Man, I sold you a bill of goods." And he goes, "What are you talking about?" And I go, "I got to get both my hips replaced." And he had already had a knee replacement. And he goes, get it replaced. Quit worrying about it. And he turned around and walked out, you know. And so I was feeling bad because I really thought, you know, sheesh. Well, but dude, you're not suiting up and going out on the field. I mean, you're going right. to occupy a chair. I yeah. mean, come on. And I tell you, you talk about anybody that has serious, like, hip, joint, knee, and you're being – it's being recommended to you to get the replacement. It's it's do it. Um, please do it because the quality of life is you don't know how much pain you're in until you get it repaired. So then I got both hips replaced and then next my knees went and I it's been a little over, I think I may be coming up on two years since I had my knees done. So I've had both hips, both knees and it's, it's a godsend. Best thing you did. Yeah. Finally, well, football, after all those years at the Broncos, man. you finally got some hardware. Yeah. Oh, well, I have been. <laughs> yeah. I have a. Uh, I have. No, I got. Uh, I got three second place rings. And then, and then when we got beat by uh, the Giants, our Giants, when we got beat by the Seahawks by Russell Wilson uh, in twelve. I got a second place ring and then it's a champ. You get the division championship ring. And then when we won in 15, I got a, got a honker, big, big Super Bowl ring. Yeah. Sweet. So, Sweet. Yeah. which he has slid around his wrist and he's wearing right now. Well, Hey, look, uh, the preceding message was brought to you by AARP and the Academy for orthopedic surgeons. So, uh, <laughs> I, I can't tell you, get it done. Get it done. Yeah. Well, besides, it's a small price to pay to set off a metal detector going through the airport to get those things replaced because yeah. it's truly yeah. quality of life. Well, hey, look, I saw you, you. I mean, you're running operations. We got to be respectful of your time here. But I got to tell yeah. you, I mean, this is in terms of where we went with this and where we thought we were going to go and what we ended up with. There is one thing I learned out of this. Number one, the N on Nebraska's helmet doesn't stand for knowledge anymore. Thanks to you. Number two. <laughs> If there's somebody I don't want to piss off and have them play a practical joke on me, dude, it's you. I mean, I thought I was the master of it, but putting the snake in there, the, you know, the the, the firecracker. Oh, okay, you, that's next level shit. I got to give you, oh, I yeah. give you props for that, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we also learned that uh, John Elway's name is really John Elwood. That's good. Yeah. All right. Well, here's the deal. You get John Elway on this, and I promise I, I, I'm the king of practical jokes. I can get you even from here. But you put Elway on, I'll give you a reprieve. There will, there will be no retribution. Deal? <laughs> retribution I, for I'm what? Not, I'm not making any promises. <laughs> I'll uh, ask you, but I, I – Just be uh, careful opening a, up your laundry bag, okay? That's all I can say, pal. <laughs> yeah, I'm going, I'm going on a hopefully a long motorcycle ride in the first part of July. And I'm going to try to go from the whole Idaho on the BDR. And uh, John has a place. He lives up in that part of Idaho. And uh, he goes, because everybody asks, because every year I go on a long motorcycle ride. Last year I did 6,000, 7,000 miles. 
Dang. Six, 7,000 miles in just over two weeks. But this one is 1,400 miles, but it's all dirt and you camp. And, oh. You know, so anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's where you get away and everything from Afghanistan and all that, the, you get all that kind of. Get that yeah. clarity. Yeah. 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 Get your mind back right. Oh, I tell you what, Keith, I, I, our listeners don't know, but Keith doesn't do interviews and you can research him. I think we've might've found one article out of a Dallas uh, newspaper, but it was mostly the Dallas cops talking about you. So the fact that you agreed to come on here, it's a true honor for us. You uh, are friends are friends. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's, that's the camaraderie and the brotherhood of law enforcement. When I asked Keith, he said, I don't do interviews, but for you, I will. So it's so, been a true honor on here you, for to have you here, brother, and, and uh, no, tell us everything you that you've much. been through. So this is, people can't you, see this. This is me saluting you, sir. Thank you for service. Thank you absolutely for doing and, uh, what you do. And one thing I want to mention that we didn't talk about, but one of the things that DEA did in Afghanistan the whole time I was there, not because of me, but because when we were there, is with our military, we did what we called was force protection. And we provided information to our military and to the MOI guys and to some of the other militaries as well that were ISAF, but predominantly our guys, where our guys ambushed the ambushers. And then we got to listen to it. And uh, it was, I just, I'm wanting to give kudos to DEA for their contribution in Afghanistan because we saved saved DEA lives. saved a lot of good guys' lives. Oh, outstanding. And, set, and sent a lot of bad guys. We had we had and I'll shut up and then we'll hang up. But we had guys calling in sick to jihad. Really? And they they said it like that. And I'm calling in sick for jihad. And we sent those recordings to the 10th group and to the, I mean, it was, and they loved it. I mean, it was, that's how effective the program was that was ongoing over there. So it's like, it's. Your boss over there was Mike Marsak, right? Yeah. Who's another legend yeah. in DEA. Good yeah, friend. He's such a good dude. And he, he lives 20 miles from here. So my regards to Mike when you say I him. will. We're getting Elwood on. Um, you're coming back. We're going to have to do another story, and uh, we're going to have to figure out a great practical joke to play on Murph. So we're you and I, we'll talk. Let me tell you what, okay. now, somebody brings a snake in here, somebody's getting shot. Uh, there's no two ways about it, and it ain't going to be wadding. <laughs> okay. We bring this to a close. Everybody hang on and stay tuned for the debrief. Man, first of all, he's funny as hell. And second of all, <laughs> he did not have a concept of, hey, Steve, you, you know, I mean, Keith, you put a headset on to keep it on during the podcast. Here he is taking it <laughs> off, going to get all his Taliban and Afghan related stuff and, you know, everything else. And uh, he gave up a lot of money and a, a big career to become, to go to, go into law enforcement. Oh, you're not kidding. If you didn't know this already, you don't go in law enforcement to get rich. If you're going to be an honest cop. Now, there's some douchebags out there that do, but uh, what it was, I mean, you. so when we interview somebody for our listeners, we actually see them on video as we're speaking, but we only record the audio portion. 
in the background of his office at the Denver Broncos training camp looks like a museum in there. Holy cow, he's got more crap on his walls and on his shelves on the desktop. I'm not sure how he finds any workspace to work. And that's what it was. He was so excited about showing us the things that he had available. And um, I mean, you could just tell the guy just was pouring his heart out to us. But you're right, man. <laughs> Next time we send him a headset, we're going to get a chin strap or something on it so he can't take it off. Yeah, well, he played. Apparently, he played. Apparently, he took his helmet off in a few games too. He, I, I had to edit out a lot of the. <laughs> he meant well, but I just truly, I can't tell you how what an honor it was, Keith, to have you on the show. Thank you, brother. Um, I'm sure we'll be in touch in the future. He owes us an interview with John Elwood. He said he was going to do it. I'm curious to see if he brings him on or Elwood from the Blues Brothers. Well, either way, Elwood, if you're listening, um, we got a, we got a headset for you. Just remember, leave it on your fucking head. There you go. There you go. Great interview, though. Honored. Great interview. Hey, and guys, as you're hearing this, as this episode drops, it's going to be Memorial Day of 2022. So first of all, um, we want to remember the reason for Memorial Day. And the reason for Memorial Day is for all of those who have died in the service of our country and the armed forces. And so this is us saluting you say, we remember, um, never forget. Um, a lot of people who have given everything to, to defend and protect freedom and freedom in the United States. So this is me and Murph saluting you. As we all know, freedom is not free. So God bless the, those that dedicated their lives and their families. Yeah. And it's not happy Memorial Day, folks. It's not a reason, you know, to have a sale and everything else. It's it's time to reflect back and remember who the true heroes are. But anyway, that being said, hey, guys, as you're also hearing this, too, when this drops on Monday, May 31st, 2022, Murph and I will be the next day in San Diego at the Southern California Gang Conference. So we are going to be bringing you some interesting tales. Not sure yet what it's going to be, but... <laughs> this is And this is going to be our first remote podcast recordings. Um, so that's that's why it's a conference with uh, close to a thousand gang and narcotics investigators around Southern California. I've heard a lot of stories just talking to these guys in the restaurants and the bars and out in the hallways at the conference site. Um, it's unbelievable what goes on out there. I mean, what a violent place that is out there. And you got all these dedicated heroes. And I'll tell you, in keeping with uh, our collection of practical jokes, because you heard Keith Bishop played some awesome. This guy has got A-level practical jokes. I am going to get somebody down there to wear a palaclava to record a podcast episode so we can protect their identity. <laughs> you're going to get our asses kicked out there. That's what you're going to do. I'm going to get yours kicked. I can run faster than you, man. You're still hurting. So <laughs> it's it's like the shark catches the slowest fish, dude. Just remember. It's amazing how fast I can run when I'm scared. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, hey, let's bring this to a close. Again, thank you guys. Once again, we appreciate every one of you out there, all of our players out there. And thank you for supporting the show. And once again, we want to thank you guys for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. <laughs>